This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Why is it whenever something happens, it is always you three? Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on? Hey, man. Uh, very happy to be talking about a very underrated film. Um, this was actually one that I considered ta talking about back when the podcast was underrated. Oh. Um, so I'm glad we finally got around to it. Um, so today we are talking about the sixth film in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And to help us talk about it, we are joined uh, by our fearless leader from the Outer Rim, Josh Mesker. Welcome, dude. Hello. How's it going? It's going. Just had a busy day and my last <laughs> bit of effort and energy will be expended on this podcast. So congratulations. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we move into the, uh, the review? Yeah, I guess I've done a couple podcasts with Franchise Fatigue. We did Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and then a two-part... Wasn't it a two-parter on the last two Jedi, was it not? But that's it not really epic. more about me. That's about my involvement with the podcast. Um, I, along with Gabe and James, admin The Outer Rim, which is about 5,300 members strong. You can come join us on Facebook and join in the uh, civil Star Wars discussion for a change. And what's really great is once I set that whole thing up, you know, Gabe and some others just kept creating content, even without me being able to be part of it. So I really appreciate it. It's like some of you guys are doing double duty since I'm the, I'm the dad with four kids who's busy all the time but uh love star wars love fantasy harry potter uh the film series in particular was um i thought really great i haven't read the books so i'm sorry for those of you who have what it is a point of contention in my marriage so uh <laughs> my wife is a huge harry potter fan who has read the whole series and she is going to get to me eventually and i will i will in fact read them but uh as a recent convert i approve it's genuinely fantastic yes yes i've realized that and uh in fact my nine-year-old son has read more harry potter than i have so so if that says anything but as a film series it does a lot right and uh you know even if it's even its lows are balanced out by the highs and the half-blood prince in particular is easily in my top three of the series so i look forward to talking about it before we begin our discussion on uh, the Half-Blood Prince, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, please uh, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and also like us on Facebook so you can keep up to date with all the latest episodes and uh, give feedback that can end up on this show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought about this movie. Marbeth said, The book is my favorite in the series and the movie is my least favorite. It feels like the production team didn't know which plot thread to follow, so it's a jumbled mess. The big reveal of who the Half-Blood Prince is had no impact on the film because the viewer is not given a reason to be invested in that discovery. Our past and future guest, Ryan Wall, said, uh, Jim Broadbent is a revelation. My goodness, Horace Slughorn is just delightful in this film. Also, redemption for Michael Gambon. 
All respect to Richard Harris. I just can't imagine him pulling off what this film in particular requires. Kevin said, very good. Second best in the franchise. Anthony said, good, but wasn't my fave. Curry said, my favorite. <laughs> uh, other past and future guests, Chad Hopkins said, uh, this is the one that I always think of as probably my favorite. Tyler Smith from the More Than One Lesson podcast said, there were obviously some big developments in it, the introduction of Horcruxes, the death of Dumbledore, etc., but it feels like a transitional film. This is a bridge meant to get us from the return of Voldemort to the final confrontation. As such, though there are some nice visuals and good character moments, the film doesn't feel particularly satisfying. I'll casually throw on many of the other movies, even those with a cliffhanger ending, but I usually only see this one if I'm doing a complete watch through the whole series. I kind of have the opposite feeling. This, this is, is like that, the most satisfying movie for me. This is the one that I feel would be easiest to just throw on and watch, except for maybe the first couple, just because those are so breezy. But this is, this is just chilling this, in this movie. Um, then over on Twitter, uh, compellingly odd at JX Shram said, my favorite book made into the worst film in the franchise. Despite Order of the Phoenix being one of my faves, I think Yates should have stepped down after it and kept up the tradition of new directors coming in. This film looks horrible. It's murky and muted. And the core oh mystery gosh. of who the Half-Blood Prince is not given the justice it deserves. Oh, I'm so triggered. <laughs> um, all I can say is uh, I hope you'll listen. And uh, even if you don't change your mind, at least uh, maybe expand your mind just some new perspectives on... Um, how this film uh, is maybe not horrible looking um horrible looking oh my gosh <laughs> this is the only one in the entire series to be nominated for best cinematography i'll have you know exactly all right so moving into the behind the scenes discussion uh harry potter and the half-blood prince was published on july 16th of 2005 two years after order of the phoenix later that same year the goblet of fire film would be released while in post-production for Order of the Phoenix, David Yates was asked to return and, and accepted. Um, according to Yates, both uh, Alfonso Cuaron and Mike Newell had expressed desires to come back uh, to the series for this film. I, I, I It's a kind of a tragedy that uh, Cuaron never came back, but although I am, for the most part, pretty happy with the work that Yates did. I mean, thank goodness Newell never came back. <laughs> Regarding Yates' return, producer David Barron commented, that since the production for the films was so massive and complicated, he said, uh, most directors get to the end of it and think, that was brilliant, now I need to rest. But David Yates got to the end and went, that was great, I'd love to have, I'd love to have another go. Um, and I think a lot of credit for the, I mean, uh, Yates' uh, willingness to continue with his franchise has to go to, you know, producers David Heyman, David Barron, uh, who had been upgraded uh, to producer in, uh, in during the since uh, Yates came on. Um, you know, he's continued working with Heyman for the Fantastic Beasts films. Uh, David Barron produced Legend of Tarzan. Uh, and of course, um, he's been working with uh, Warner Brothers on the entirety of the Harry Potter series. Um, and, uh, you know, producers will be instrumental into how good or bad a director's experience on a film will be. And like even uh, like Alfonso Cuaron, he he's continued working with uh, uh, David Heyman and Heyday Films on uh, for they produced uh, Gravity together. So mm. clearly, people like working with uh, this this you know th this team and even Warner Brothers. Like you know, they've they've kind of screwed up their reputation very very badly in the last five years. But like historically, they've been viewed as like one of the most director friendly studios. And everything Yates said 
regarding this production in particular is like absolutely nothing but praise for working with a uh, at least the, the the executives from WB that he uh, that he himself worked on worked with. I mean, yeah, I mean <laughs> they let him make this movie. <laughs> this is that, that says a lot. God um, awesome. Steve Clovis returned uh, from his break to write the adaptation, and uh, one major advantage that the filmmakers had with this movie and then the next two was that uh, this was the first film to be produced after the publication of the Deathly Hallows novel. Before this, Rowling had guarded the secrets of where the series was going very jealously. Um, she would give hints, you know, hints or prods if she thought the script was going too far in the wrong direction, but she wouldn't tell them what was going to happen. But now, now that everyone knew where the series was actually going to end up, they could finally start actively setting up the pieces with the films. Um, and I, which I think is a good thing. You could, you could start to see bits and pieces of Deathly Hallows making their way back into this movie, which is nice. And I think very important when you're telling an overarching series like this. Also, I think that break did uh, Clovis a lot of good because I've, I've praised his writing a lot, but not because of like any particular anything particularly special in the scripts more that they were just really strong adaptations and, and, and clever adaptations. This one in particular, it was where I actually started noticing like how, how, how good many a- adaptive choices were, but also dialogue. This film ha- has a lot of uh, di- uh, incredible dialogue that is unique to this film and not just <laughs> ripping, no, ripping a uh, JK Rowling lines because her dialogue is so fa- fabulous. You could just usually just take it whole cloth and you'll have an amazing script but i i really noticed i really noticed his work in particular in this one yeah there's a lot of good a lot of good interaction in this for the film's uh cast i mean most notable and most awesome new cast is obviously jim broadbent as horace slughorn yeah he and yates had worked together previously on the tv film the young royals so he, he would go on to bring quite a few people over from from the uh his pre- previous BBC cast. I want to go back and watch his BBC stuff. State of Play. Really, really that, good. That's the one I really want to watch. Um, Helen McCrory plays Narcissa Malfoy. As we had talked, she was actually uh, going to be playing Bellatrix. Uh, however, due to a pregnancy, uh, she wasn't able to play that role because of its physicality. Uh, so they did bring her back, though, <laughs> as her would-be sister. Um, we also have David uh, Legano as uh, the werewolf Fenrir Greyback much toned down look for werewolf jesse cave as lavender brown uh, anna schaefer as ramilda vane freddie stroma as cormac mcclagan uh, this is just a great name rob knox as marcus belby uh, and then for uh, the young tom riddle uh, we actually so christian colson um, who had played him in chamber of secrets was actually hoping to come back for the flashback sequences however um Yates didn't cast him in the role because he was almost 30 and <laughs> looks a little bit too old for the character at this point. I mean, um, he looked a little bit too old in Chamber of Secrets, but he's so good, I don't care. Well, there you go. Um, so, so one actor um, who's hoping to be cast is Jamie Campbell Bauer. Um, he was auditioning, uh, didn't get However, he was later cast as the teenage Grindelwald in Deathly Hallows Part 1. Oh, okay. Yeah, so so a lot of these people kind of come into the franchise early and don't get parts, and then they just show up later. So filming began in September of 2007. Yates hired French cinematographer uh, Bruno Delbanel to shoot the film. 
Uh, he shot Amelie, which for my money might be the most gorgeous film ever made. Um, the director of that film, uh, Jean-Pierre Genet, had been offered uh, Order of the Phoenix to direct. Uh, Del Bonnell has also collaborated multiple times with Joe Wright, Tim Burton, and the Coen brothers, uh, shooting one of your favorites, James, Inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> Once again, it was shot at the Leaveston Film Studios in England, with exteriors being shot in England and Scotland. The film score, um, composer Nicholas Hooper, who had previously done the score for Order of the Phoenix, had come back uh, to score this one. Uh, and an interesting tidbit, the album actually debuted uh, at 29 on the Billboard uh, 200 chart, making it uh, the highest soundtrack among all of the soundtracks released, which is... It was probably Weasley Stomp that did it. There you go. <laughs> it was all the rage for the kids. Um the film had its premiere on July 7th, 2009 in London uh, with its uh, worldwide release on the 15th. One thing I want to mention about the post-production was uh, unlike Order of the Phoenix, Yates uh, kept tinkering with the edit far into post-production, um, which caused the VFX to go way over budget. Generally, with a film, you want to get a final lock edit as soon as possible so they know exactly what shots they need effects for and exactly how long they need to be. But he, he kept tinkering with it. Uh, he's in a win over budget. It's probably why this is the most expensive film in the series uh, at $250 million, which is costing as much as the final two films put together. Um, but because the series was so successful at this point and uh, Yates had proved himself with Order of the Phoenix, they just let him make the changes he wanted. Uh, there was some contention with the studio over the look of the film, and it was interesting. Um, it's again, again, telling about Warner Brothers at the time was that when he was when he was talking about how mu about his relationship with the studio, and he was like he was kind of being really effusive about how good the relationship was. He went to the one time they fought over something as evidence of you know of how good Warner Brothers was, and the the contention they had was over the look of the film. Um, Delbanal had been was overseeing the color grading. He made some like really unique choices with the digital grading and put in the post production, and it freaked out some of the producers. I'm not entirely sure like what the looks were. Like he keeps saying it was a very European look. Um, uh, so they, they kind of asked if he could add more color to the color grade, which they thought would have under undermined the look. So they kind of went back and took out some of the more e extreme elements, but kept most of the color the same and then they brought it back to the producers and they, they they said it was you know they allowed them to keep the desaturated grade uh so we have the final grade is a bit of a compromise and like, i think like even yates was like yeah we went too far and this is this is a very extreme looking film um and i i don't know that it needs it's really gorgeous but i think i think they found a good middle ground um yeah all right so uh moving into the main review um uh, so, so what is your history with the uh, the Harry Potter series, Josh, and then kind of what, your history with uh, the Half-Blood Prince in particular? Yeah, so I actually did not watch the movies until I got married and my wife compelled me to watch the movies. I was, my tastes, I'll fully admit, were not as refined or open Uh uh, at the at the time, at least with these kind of like major major franchises, you know, there was Harry Potter mania was just like sweeping the nation with the books, and it's not something that that interested me, and it was like super popular, and I didn't understand why. 
And but how old would you have been at the time? Man, I so when, when did when did Sorcerer's Stone come out? Nineteen ninety four. Yeah, ninety four. Oh, no, no, not four. Ninety four. No, that seems that's a little correct. early. Maybe like ninety seven. Ninety seven. So I would Are you have talking been about the movie or the book. The book. Okay. Right. The book. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. Yeah. So. So the uh, if the book came out in 97, which sounds about right, I would have been almost 13 years old. So I was like the prime candidate in many ways to, to read this series, but it just never really caught on for me. I didn't get it. I didn't see the draw to it. And everybody around me was talking about it. Um, and that kind of turned me off. And my uh, I have since matured in my <laughs> approach mm -hmm. to these kinds of things. And I'm so glad that, uh, gosh, I guess this would have been, uh, you know, some, some time ago now. I mean, I, I started watching them shortly after I got married and was bummed that I hadn't at least watched the, watched the movies because I really did uh, fall in love with this universe, these characters, especially the core three, but then the supporting cast of characters is so strong too. And um, it's just a great work of fiction that I wish I would have jumped into much earlier. So I'm a late Harry Potter adopter, so to speak. And uh, the Half-Blood Prince is one that I keep going back to. Um, and I'm a big fan of when they're executed well, these these movies that can be considered transition movies from like one big thing to another, the, the transitional piece in between um, the major story arc, so to speak. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the empire strikes back is one of my favorite movies. Of course, the last Jedi, the dark Knight. Um, the list can go on and on. Uh, Catching Fire is a great movie too, along those lines. Not to the obviously not to the level that the others that I just mentioned, but it's a great in between film uh, that bridges a gap. And so much happens in in this movie to develop that core cast of characters and move this story arc along, uh, especially when it comes to. Um, Harry and Snape and it's like this just really engrossing mystery story and you know Gabe you mentioned that it's the calm movie and I'm not sure if you were being sarcastic or not uh, no. <laughs> but it is calm but it is a it's really uneasy mm -hmm. and that feeling is communicated so well it may be a calm but it's the calm before the storm it's the calm before the stuff really hits the fan. And it does such a spectacular job of bringing these characters that we've followed throughout the series, basically preparing them for that moment, preparing for when really things just explode um, uh, in, the, in the next film in, in particular, after Half-Blood Half Prince. And so it's a transition film, but but the character development is, is honestly crucial uh, to the story. Without the Half-Blood Prince, you, you, you miss a huge chunk of, you know, of the story and of the character development. And um, you know, the series wouldn't be what it is 
uh, without it. And so I really consider, I don't think it being a transition film is a, is a negative for this um, yeah. at all. And that's what draws me to it so much is that, you know, every film in this series, obviously it tests the characters and it, it pushes their boundaries um, of, of what they can handle. But, but this one is, um, this one takes it to another level before the Deathly Hallows and um, tests them all, in my opinion, to, you know, to a breaking point. Um, and, and that's why I love it so much. I definitely want to talk about the, uh, the transitionary part. Um, but before that, James, what's your story? Oh, well, you know, it all began when I was a kid. Uh, no. Um, so it's funny. Uh, this is one that we watched. Uh, we watched two the same day whenever I first watched this in my marathon earlier this year. Uh, and we started with Order of the Phoenix and then we watched this. And then the next day we did the two Deathly Hallows. So this was like right in the middle of that bunch of movies. And because it is kind of the most calm of them all and the least forward moving, I think it just kind of got blended in between the, the movies that bookend it. And so I remembered really liking it, but it's the one that I remembered maybe the least about. Um, and, and I think it's one that suffered the most for me having just read the books because there were so many things where I'm like, oh, well, they took out this and this and this. And um, man, this rewatch was a massive thing because I was interpreting anything left out of the book as leaving the film incomplete. And in a way, being further from the book now, I've actually gone fuzzy on a lot of details in the book. And I think that actually helped me like this more because it didn't let me interpret things not there that were in the book as, well, this is an incomplete package. I wasn't thinking about those things anymore. So I was engaging with it entirely, almost as a movie. And it's a lot more cohesive when viewing it that way it's a lot more internally put together and and right um whenever i'm not just trying to pick at the things that aren't there uh and i, I messaged um i messaged y'all while i was watching it like i i i don't know like i said i remember liking it but this was a i don't know this was a substantial increase to me uh to where i man i really love this movie like way more than I remembered. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Yeah. So my, my, my memory, my memory of the first viewing is a little fuzzy. I watched it directly after reading the book and I, I think I liked it. Um, but my main memory is of, of like successive viewings and just falling in love with it, particularly as I became more and more interested in film and filmmaking, just like looking at the cinematography and the tone and just the mood of the film, it, it just keep, you know, I, every time I watch it, I fall a little bit more in love with it. And that was true of this latest viewing. It was interesting what you said about the distance from the book helping. And I felt that a lot this time to where with my previous viewings, I've always felt a little bit like it, 
it's really good, but maybe a little disjointed and like certain plot threads that I had in my mind from the book didn't entirely connect. But this latest viewing, 95% of that just kind of smoothed over like, oh, this is what the movie is. Like those missing plot threads from the book. Yeah, they're in the book, but they're not really important to the movie. Like it kind of, it just kind of brought it all together as a, as a cinematic narrative for this last viewing. Um, but moving into the discussion on this being a transitionary film, that's a very common critique. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the people who gave feedback, Tyler Smith was talking about that. Um, and the very often is like, nothing happens in this movie. And that is true. And that's a good thing. <laughs> um, for a couple reasons. One, because, you know, it, it's, we've, we've been running for three films, Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix. They're very fast movies. They're, they're pedal to the metal. They've got a very, they've got a, a massive plot that they have to get across, um, and some do it more successfully than others, but they are all very fast paced. They're just moving, moving, moving. Half-Blood Prince is the end of Hogwarts. It's the end of childhood. It's, it, mm -hmm. Yes, it's a transitionary film. It's a transition from childhood to adulthood. It's the mm -hmm. end of everything. This the series has been about childhood. We're at school. We're, we're children. We're, we have this, this structure over us, this safety. And this film is taking away all of that. It's, it's, it's the, the formula for Harry Potter no longer exists yep. after this book. Deathly Hallows is a completely different type of story. And so what this film needed to do was calm down, bring us back into this world, make us fall in love with Hogwarts again, remind us who these characters are, because that hasn't been, because they've been different people for every movie so far. And, and depending on the film, like sometimes they, they got barely any development, particularly if like uh, Ron and Hermione, they're very often kind of shunted to the background as Harry has to be, because he's the lead, it's a movie. But this film is kind of, it's bringing the core trio back together, really digging into who they are as people, before we go into Deathly Hallows, I, I, I swear, if this film wasn't there and we just had went into, Death, into Deathly Hallows, we would barely know, we wouldn't know who these people are. Like, going from Order of the Phoenix to Deathly Hallows, like, who they are, what, what drives them, their, their relationships to each other, like, they would barely exist because these the previous three films have been so fast. So, like, on that level, it's vital. And then it's vital because it's a freaking good movie. And that, that is just, it, it uses the book's relative, um, uh, the, the, the lack of, of, of a central plot in the book. It uses that to say, great. Now we don't have to spend every minute of our time scrambling after a, a complicated plot. We could just be a movie about people. Um, and it, 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 and it, that is, and that, that whole feeling of just, this is not about plot. This is not about, you know, this a mystery. It's just about these characters interacting with an increasingly complicated world and shifting loyalties and growing up and the the the, the imminent end of childhood. Who cares who the half blood prince is? Like I, I would I wouldn't know about Hermione. Like it's and and I, I think I think readers latch on to certain plots from the book and and give them more importance and headspace than they actually had because like the, the, the search into Dumbledore's into Voldemort's past vital plot to the book, but also one that only takes up a couple chapters. Um, the half blood Prince, uh, like that's a mystery that Harry doesn't even like Hermione is in the background searching for who the, who the half blood Prince is. Harry's kind of actively trying to ignore it. So like that's, that's 
nothing near a central mystery. And then like the biggest thing we have to a central mystery in the book is Harry trying to figure out what is Draco up to. But even that, it's played as if Harry's trying to hang, desperately hang on to his kid detective status. And Ron and Hermione are like, dude, let it go. Mm-hmm. It's probably nothing. You're, you know, you're, you're overreacting. And he's proven right, but the whole the whole story is kind of downplaying Harry's suspicions all throughout. It's so like none of these come, none of these like various plots comes in as like this is the central story. So I think, given that the filmmakers have much more freedom to be interpretive and and you know and tell the story, but you, you, I don't think they have the same duty to focus on any one of those as you would in like prisoner of Azkaban with Sirius black, like that, that's the story or the chamber of secrets. Like that's the story. This one has like four or five different stories kind of swirling around each other. And I think because none of them are so, are so important. I think like this film actually feels like other than the half blood prince one, it, I think it does most of them pretty, a very decent justice, obviously truncated. It's a movie, but within the structure of the film and the way the way they introduce these mysteries, I think they do them pretty well. Um, yeah. Hmm. I said a lot there. Yes. Um, I think that, um, and you mentioned growing up, I actually think that the Half-Blood Prince out of this movie series is the most coming-of-age movie in a fantasy series that has a lot to do with growing up and coming of age, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another thing that I really appreciate it too. I think you put it really well when you said this is half of Prince for, for the core trio is marking essentially the end of childhood. It's marking the end of innocence. It's preparing them for what is to come, which is dark and devastating and difficult (laughs) Uh, trials that they have to endure, um, not even knowing if they're going to uh, survive them. You know, as Voldemort is pressing in to Hogwarts even stronger, these relationships are pressing into each other within Hogwarts and being tested like they've never been tested before. And, And we get to see that play out. Um, we get to see that play out between uh, Ron and Hermione and the, uh, the, the complicated <laughs> uh, dynamic between those two, um, like never really, like we hadn't seen yet. Um, and it really delves into the dynamic between Ron and Hermione in a super compelling uh, an interesting way, um, you know, this, I just, I just find it so fascinating that, uh, thematically, uh, this film gels so well between what's going on and what's pressing into Hogwarts, um, and, and, and testing it. And then what's going on inside Hogwarts that's testing, testing everyone else and forcing them to grow and mature and find out exactly who there are and what, who they are and what their place is um, in, you know, in this world and how they relate to each other. Um, it's the most coming of age 
coming of age <laughs> movie in the series. Mm-hmm. Something that I I really think is important too that y'all kind of got at is is just the the presence of Hogwarts in this. Um, this is a love as, letter to Hogwarts, man. Especially like looking at looking just at the movies and where we are here in the series. It's the first time we've really just gotten to. It's the first time Hogwarts has been able to feel like Hogwarts since the Prisoner of Azkaban to me, you know, because Goblet of Fire, we've it's occupied firstly just in terms of the narrative, both the book and the movie. It's occupied by separate schools, and everything is so intentionally different to accommodate these games. And then specifically with the movie, I just found like my irritation with Ron and. The kind the the elements that I found kind of cringe. I didn't I didn't have as much fun being in Hogwarts because all a lot of the moments that were there to be fun, I was like, oh, this is, I really hate the Weasley twins. This is off-putting. I'm supposed to love <laughs> uh, love Hogwarts, and so you don't. So you're saying you like this one because there's no Weasley twins? Hey, I love their scene here. <laughs> no, and I, no, I don't like them in that particular movie. I love them within the series, but I just find them pretty irritating in that movie. And then obviously Order of the Phoenix, we lose Dumbledore. It's taken over by Umbridge. Like there's just such a feeling of angst and lack of home and lack of comfort. So, you know, we've gone two movies without Hogwarts' as home. And so feeling just like we're going from class like we're going to our potions class we're we're talking to our professors we're just walking the ground we're having you know girlfriend boyfriend problems we're doing like it's just it's a settling back into where we started and lived at for three movies and so there is despite it being a very glum often dour movie it's like it's both unnerving and unsettling and yet a warm blanket all at the same time yeah yeah there oh. i was just gonna say it really is that um it's 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 both that warm blanket but then it's also such an illusion it's like the illusion half-blood prince is like the illusion that things can actually be normal and that's just really tragic yeah there's the, that that's the thing the, there are so many defining features of this film. I think the the most ever present thing is just is the oppressive nature of the danger that's rising up. But and and like Hogwarts is is back. Hogwarts is safe again, safe quote unquote. Um, but never for a second are we allowed to forget that Voldemort is right outside and he's watching and he's coming. Um, Right from the opening, you know, we open up with the aftermath of the of the, the ministry battle, um, and then Harry reading the papers, and and there's always and and, and we open up also with the, the the Death Eater attack. Like they're in the open now. They're 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 going into to uh, Diagon Alley and and kidnapping Ollivander. Yeah, like it's this the world the world the whole world is no longer safe hogwarts is really the only safe place in the entire story um but even even then we're, we're constantly cutting outside with reminders of that you know there's the aura guards 
wandering around the cat the outskirts we see we see the uh the shield around there and occasionally like a death he just will try to fly through it and bounce off like and, and then we have draco doing his thing um so just the feeling of threat and danger is is just outside the walls is always present and it's just it, that's just in the cinematography that is a very like it's it feels it's overcast it feels there's always clouds gathering in the sky though everything is saying the the storm is gathering it's the call before the storm um and that's both that's like that's plot that's it's relevant to the plot as in Voldemort's coming but also thematically kind of the meta narrative the gathering storm it's it's like adulthood this is the final year at Hogwarts mm-hmm. and yeah we're we're trying to be still be children but you're knowing that it's ending very soon and every everything you've defined your life by will, su- will suddenly be irrelevant. Like for seven years, we, this, you know, the classes, this, this, this structure of life, and all of a sudden everything is different. Even like your friendships, like, all, like your school friendships, what are they going to be when you're an adult? Like all these things that have meant everything to your life either vanish or change it, it's like kind of existentially horrifying um mm-hmm. if you don't you know if you if you don't know what you want to be as an adult um so like all of that is it, it's it's both like thematically and plot relevant that just feeling of that we're sitting right on the edge of something tremendous and that makes this time so precious it's the last time so we're just going to have these quiet beautiful shots of hogwarts the camera slowly moving down the halls and these beloved settings and the and then we're gonna have these lovely moments with our friends there are so many wonderful scenes that are just harry ron and hermione sitting on a couch by a fire talking quietly as you like this it, it that's what you do with your really good friends it's just kind of just hanging out being ourselves discussing the day whatever whatever is happening um, just these little precious human moments that they can have together. Um, because the, the, you know, the opportunity is not going to always be there. Like I, like I, I understand, like, I guess if, if you're only half watching and you don't get into the mood, it can feel like just what happened. But I, I feel like once you buy into the movie and you insert yourself into the mood that David Yates is creating, I don't know. Like it's 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 incredible. It it, it reminds me of like a, a like a tamer version of what Sha- uh, Shyamalan does, where those are movies that they 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 occupy a slightly different plane of reality. People act a little strange. They're very mannered, um, and Yates films do that as well. But for me, like once I buy into the film, uh, they they're just engrossing, and I I can't look away. Yeah, I mean, visually, this movie is just absolutely striking um and easily up there in my top three for 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 cinematography as well and actually i found it interesting i was looking on my phone on who the cinematographer is for the half-blood prince and it's i had never heard of him before honestly but it's bruno delbano and he shot delbanel i believe yeah Debanel, and he was the cinematographer for Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, that's one of the greatest looking movies ever. Uh, and Amelie and The Darkest Hour and a whole host of other films. And so he knows how to create a 
a canvas and he understands uh, setting and how powerful these establishing shots and these atmospheric uh, shots that you're talking about, Gabe, um, can be. Um, and, and I just, I mean, one of the things I just love about it so much, aside from the character development that occurs, is just looking at it. And I, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a huge compliment to, the, to this movie where somebody, fine, believe that nothing happens. I disagree with you, but, you know, for to people who say that, but I don't know how you can't be engrossed by how this movie flows from the from the cinematography to the editing it is so it's so seamless and so well put together in that regard i'm just fascinated when i watch it on a technical level yeah the the mix of just the the images the camera movement the sound design uh nicholas hooper's music like all of those put together these gorgeous slowly drifting shots of you know hooper's music and just whatever the, the composition's happening like it's it's like using all the tools to just to be to, to kind of just transfix you in what's happening on screen and talking about the cinematography like we, we, we hyperbolize a lot on this show but i don't know if any praise of the cinematography here would even reach the level of hyperbole it's that good. And like one of the people giving feedback called it, you know, said it's ugly. I've, I, I've watched a couple of like the YouTube criti video essay critiques oh. of the film. Like, oh, it's just, it's just brown. Oh, no, no, Where's the color? Learn to appreciate cinema. Like, man, there, there's no appreciation <laughs> for, for this, the cinematic look. Oh my gosh, this movie is so gorgeous. Yeah, you know, like I, I think that ar argument is kind of invalid for two reasons. What reason number one, it's beautiful. So shut <laughs> up. <laughs> reason number two is that it, I think that's all. It's also it's thematically re relevant. They were they were going for like a Rembrandt look, is what they said. Um, just it's all this very golden hue with a lot of kind of kind of this sort of harsh lighting coming in, creating these really gorgeous shadows. Um, and and the lack of color means they have to work so much harder with the lighting and boy do they mm -hmm. just the way looking at every shot the way they guide your eye to whatever you're supposed to be looking at is just flawless but then also just just like look in the back i like what what they, they show you what they want you to see and then you get to explore and it's every inch of the screen is just filled with beauty and depth and character um but i think what this i think what what the cinematography is doing thematically is it's it's a golden hue. That's warmth. It's comfort. The brown tinting is memory. That's that's it's what our you know old photos look like. It's the kind of sepia tone look. It's this is like the the, the, the this film is about capturing beautiful moments that will soon be gone, and so that. that so recreating that kind of old photograph look is about like the, the is trying to lock it in our memory. This is a, this is like a beautiful idyllic time, and no matter what happens in this film, it's going to end. And but but, but the, these memories are going to be part. Hopefully, the, these memories will you know make create us you know turn us into the adults we'll become. I'm um, so like 
that feeling of th- th- this is fleeting. It's going to be over soon. The beaut- the warmth that comes from the golden hue cinematography, it's comfort, it's safety. Ho- and like when we go outside of Hogwarts, the coloring changes. Or whenever we, cu- whenever we cut to Malfoy, the golden hue is gone. It's just the cold gray. So like, gray. He's not... Mm-hmm. Like, what they do with his cinematography is incredible. I'll talk about uh, like he's not part of this world. He's always separate. Because from the out, from the opening of it, he even says, you know, he his first lines are about distancing himself. Yeah, like he, from the Hogwarts. cinematography is always separating him, putting him to the side, casting him in shadow. Like he's like internally, he is operating on a different like realm frame of reality than the rest of the students. They're having they're they're still being kids, and he's now being forced into th- this horrible role as a villain that he doesn't want to be. Um, it's like, it's, it's all, it's thematically important to the, the, the themes and the story being told and it's beautiful. So shut up. <laughs> and, and it is so cool. Cause the thing is, you know, on, on the train, when he talks about like, you know, let's just say, you know, when, you know like if I had to go another two more years or uh, another year here, I'd kill myself or whatever he says. Uh, so it starts by separating him. It establishes this, his separation through color. And then, so on the train, he's, he's still with the other Slytherin students, but there's even distance since there. Like I, I forget her name, but she's Pansy Parkinson. Like, all right. Malfoy. Yeah. Like she has to call him back to sit down and he kind of lashes out at, I forget the other student's name, but they, outside after they get off the train he's not interacting with anybody there's he doesn't have his two lackeys crab and goyle flanking him at every opportunity like he's even within his house he is entirely other and i it it was funny whenever we were watching this at the end of order the phoenix my sister was like it's it's weird it feels like malfoy hasn't really been a a character for a while and then like this starts off obviously so strongly involving him in the narrative they're like oh, okay here's his here's his story and it's done so well a little tidbit that i love i love that we never see the uh the room of a requirement door like etched out in the wall like i love that the that the uh the series knows that we know what it is so like whenever he just kind of stands in front of a blank wall and then we transition there i'm like ah requirement i i know this it, it just <laughs> i gotta keep talking about the cinematography just the way the story is told in the images is like if you had shown me order of the phoenix and half the prince side by side i would never in a million years guess it was the same director like everything about how he makes movies feels changed um for the entire order of the phoenix is a film that's always in motion the camera is swooping around um, you know, characters are moving. This one is all about stillness, and the ca- very often is the camera is just locked down. If it's moving, it's this very slow dolly drift or something. Um, it's like that feeling is different. The coloring is entirely different. Like, uh, and and this is where Yates' kind of interesting coldness with actors comes in. Like, it's it's not like they're giving the performances are actually kind of lively, but there's still there's. The, the stillness of the film also applies to the characters. Um, and I know a lot that's something that turns a lot of people off. Like, oh, why are they just, why are they all standing around talking? And it's like, it's the mood. 
It's all. It's cinema. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's just uh, like okay, how like is Shyamalan that does this. I think Nolan does it to an extent. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, like it's a, it's a, it's a type of it's a filmmaking is exaggerating reality. So like if the movie is serious and oppressive, then the characters kind of slow down and they're more somber. Like it's using the characters actions to be part of the world, to integrate them into this tapestry you've created in order to, to give the viewer a mood. Um, it's, 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 yeah, as I said, it's cinema. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, just even, even there, there, those, those quiet moments, those still moments where some say that nothing happens, it's just like, but what about the body language? What about the facial expressions? What about the lighting? What about what's going on around them? Like, like take that all in. Like when you're watching this movie, you've got to think broader than, oh, nothing is happening in this scene. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to miss the point of what's going on entirely. I mean, these, these characters are, and I'm going to quote somebody, but I mean, these characters are communicating psychological and emotional experiences to each other in a profound mm -hmm. way and in, even, in this film. Even the decision to calm them down is, is powerful itself. Like just because of the performances and the way these characters have interacted before, it's it's not oh well now he just has them acting dull it's like no like that's that's a choice now try to think about why that choice is made you know every I like the idea that people are just kind of standing around and slowly talking like these these are the people who've gone through all of that and now they're kind of they're back and there's not a lot going on and so they're just they're in this weird moment uh, and and uh, speaking of like moments of of in of intentional subdued performance i i love it whenever uh harry finally gets his moment to talk with slughorn uh mm -hmm. in hagrid's hut and he's like if you you know if you don't you, my mother will die for nothing or she'll have died for nothing the bowl will never be filled like it's he's not shouting he's not animated at all but there's i really felt like captivated by his performance there just this mm -hmm. slow recitation of these of these things or I, I just i feel like with that couched within this movie it just it it hit in it in a way where where you get a feel for the intention i mean wh while at the same time shaming slughorn into doing the right thing yeah the stillness <laughs> in the dramatic moments is everything i'm thinking like, yeah. that this the, the felix felicia scene in the hut um Harry and Hermione kind of comfort each other after Ron and Lavender have gotten together. It's like, it's just a wide shot and two kids hugging on the stairs. But yep. the emotional weight of that is everything. Uh, the morning Dumbledore, where it's just a bunch of people standing silently around and they raise their wands and just the camera slowly panning, slowly down, panning, panning over. through the wands just kills me. We don't need him howling at the sky. Like the, all, all of that emotion is is fully on display if you're if you're in, connected to the film. And I think some of this is is a personality thing. Some people just don't connect to films that are really quiet like this, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, yeah. But 
I guess don't mistake that that being the film that, that, that don't don't think that makes the film bad or unsuccessful at what it's attempting to do. Um, yeah, I mean it is it, it's a drama. I mean this is more drama in one place in a two hour and fifteen minute movie uh, with not a lot of action going on until towards the end than than as you said any of the other films it's a drama at its core this that's what this movie is and that's what a lot of people just weren't really on board for but i would challenge you watch this movie series without half-blood prince and come back because i don't think you'll appreciate what happens in the deathly hallows nearly as much without the half-blood prince before it Mm, and that's not even talking about the plot stuff. That's just, that's just the emotion. Um, two shots that I think illustrate everything I'm talking about. One is after that scene I was talking with Harry and Hermione and Ron and Lavender, the camera cuts to outside the castle and is looking through the window at uh, Harry and Hermione on the stairs. Then it pans around and then we see uh, Ron and Lavender kind of going up the stairs to the window. They go and kiss and then it goes up and Draco Malfoy is out alone in the cold you know, looking out in the snow and like, it's all this storytelling happening, like in one single shot. Another shot is, um, after, after, uh, after a Draco is caught at Slughorn's party and Snape takes him outside and like, they're way down at the end of a hall and your Snape pushes him against the wall and he's, they're like arguing intensely and the camera just pans across the hall, then across a wall and then we onto Harry's face in the foreground as he's just listening to everything's being said. And it's just like, they're telling this is the story happening through entirely visual purposes. Another shot after um, he uses um, Sectum Semper on Draco and we cut back to the common room and the camera is on uh, the blood spattered potion book. Then it goes up and we see Ron, Hermione and Ginny kind of looking very, looking either very, very judgingly at Harry. And then it comes over to Harry uh, to a close up on Harry's face. It's like, that's a whole story. Blood on the book. That's the cause his friends judging him because, you know, they've been telling him this to him, to his misery. Like it's all happening. These beautiful, flawless camera movements, no dialogue necessary. Like that, that, it's storytelling. Like, and if you're on your phone, you'll miss that entire shot. And you're, you're complete, like you'll be completely out of the film, out of the story. I mean, this, this, this film follows essentially to a T the concept of um, showing it instead of saying, it. yes, all of Draco's storyline is 90% silent. Yes. Up until that final scene, like, like this is the movie where Draco comes into his own, but he barely says a word until his final conversation with Dumbledore. And yet we're never for a single second out of the loop on exactly what's happening in his head and what he's going through and what it means. Uh, While we're talking about shots, there's three that I really want to talk about. Two, almost entirely just because I think they're incredible. Like vision is (laughs) incredible. The establishing shot of of the the Quidditch arena is like Mm. mind-boggling. I love you can say that. And I know it instantly exactly, everything that, about it. It's it's in my mind forever. It's incredible. Uh, the other shot that's like that is when they apparate to the rock outside of the, oh the cave. And like mm-hmm. that, it's to me, it gives me that same feeling of 
scope. You talked about depth before. Just the the depth in that shot, and not even just like, oh, look, it's they're standing in front of something far away. Like you get we, we talk about how like pictures and movies and stuff it just it falls so short of being there like i just went on vacation and saw saw the arch at missouri and we take it i look at it and i'm like i'm almost shaking at the knees whenever i'm standing under it it's it's the grandeur there is insane and then you take a picture and it's like you can't capture that scope this movie comes so close to selling you on being there like the scope and sense of like awe and scale and mystery shrouded and all of that like it's so incredible it really it it visually it really reminds me of the shot from the two towers when aragorn uh is on brago just outside of helm's deep Mm -hmm. where the camera kind of turns around and it's that massive scale with just this small figure in front of something grand it's just it's like all the music And then, okay, so the last shot, which is more related to Malfoy and just just thematically rich uh, compositions, the shot where the the five minutes in this movie before the the Death Eaters come, I think it's oh. like just it's like it, it's like the movie just reached into my stomach and it's just like like it's just I, I, I'm so gripped by it. As he's just slowly walking through the castle. Yeah. When he's walking, there, there's a particular shot where the, the camera, the composition is split down the middle and he's walking down a lit hallway and to the right, there's a bunch of students just standing there. I noticed like that shot for the first time this time and wrote out a whole paragraph about it. <laughs> it's incredible. There's so like there's a couple students making out in the corner. There's others just kind of sitting around. It's like because you have the making out and the talking and just like the general sitting around, like the right hand of the screen is Hogwarts. It's students, it's youth. It is life. It is the youth that hasn't left yet. And then the left hand of the screen is Draco literally and figuratively because he's walking to the tower. Mm-hmm. It is him literally and figuratively His back walking is to away. The camera, yeah. Exactly. Like he, he's yeah. walking away from everything that the like everything on the right side of the frame and everything it represents. The right side of the frame is it is school. It is youth. It is Hogwarts. It is this kind of the innocence. And because that's the thing, this whole thing is so much of this movie is about losing innocence, both in terms of like we're, we're leaving high school, we're coming of age. But also, I mean, what they talk about Horcruxes, this idea of, of of splitting your soul. And so he's walking towards the stairs to to split his soul. He's walking away. He's leaving behind the innocence that is represented on the right side towards an action that would destroy him and entirely remove him from everything about what Hogwarts is. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Let's continue on this uh, talking about Malfoy. And there's one, there's a major choice this film makes story-wise that I don't think people notice that I think is genius is turning Malfoy into a point of view character. Like that's in the books, aside from like two, two sections in Sorcerer's Stone are entirely, and the, and the, uh, the prologues, they're entirely from Harry's perspective. So we have no clue what Malfoy's up to. We're just, we only know what Harry knows. 
here they do away with most of that mystery. We don't we don't know what the end game is, but even like they tell us like a third, like two thirds of the way through, it's a vanishing cabinet. Like so, we kind of we pretty much know what his plan is. Um, you know, way before we even get to the climax. So like the mystery is removed. It just plays out like this this operatic tragedy as his character is and and we we get into his head and we're just watching him try and and it's all through visuals of the the the, the shots of the birdcage the shots where he's like dwarfed by there's two shots one where he's underneath the vanishing cabinet and it towers over him one from above looking down with the vanishing cabinet taking up the frame and he's a tiny figure under it two like two of the most beautifully composed shots i've ever seen um you know as i said his color palette is entirely different and just the, watching his slow breakdown and just the way like the vanishing cabinet works it's so simple he puts the apple in he closes the doors he whispers his spell. We hear the sound. He opens the doors. It's gone. Like, it's just all visual storytelling. It's so engrossing. And little things like putting the bird in, we hear it twittering, then cutting out to the outside of Morgan and Burks, and we hear the twittering from outside the windows. Back to the back to him. We hear the noise. Silence. Failure. Like it, it's like this, the, the build of success with the apple, you know, the bite out of it, the bird. Oh, it worked. No, it didn't. It's dead. And just the slow breakdown of that. And then later on, when Harry and uh, Jenny let the bird out, we're like, oh, it's worked now. And like, it's all, <laughs> it's all just silent visual storytelling. And with, with Hooper's, you know, haunting music. And it's so engrossing. And, and Tom Felton, like, I think he's always been like he was. He's always been pretty good. He has been kind of over the top here and there, but here, he's an actual actor. Like he's not just Potter. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's not just a sniveling evil Potter. idiot. He's really got you know. He has to do so much work through his face, and oh, his suits. I, I want some of his suits <laughs> from this movie. Mm, yeah. Um, it's like the work he is doing just showing you know first his kind of disconnect from the world then the increasing pressure and the fear to the up until that final scene with dumbledore uh, it's just such excellent work all the way all the way throughout and something that we would not have gotten to nearly the same extent if they hadn't made the choice to make him a point of view character and just who cares about the mystery feel the emotions you know yeah i i feel like i've been fairly critical of of felton at times I think he's fantastic here. Uh, and something that I think is, it's, it's a testament to his performance and also to this film's ability in that he's, he's sympathetic. This is the penultimate story in the series. And every single, every tiny minute interaction we've ever had with this man has been for the sake of making us hate him even more. There's never mm-hmm. been a moment in this that hasn't been at his expense or, or in terms of, you know, making us hate him. We, we, we never, he's never like a, I don't know. It's he, he's just the, the evil character. And what I really love about it is it, I, I, intentional or not, what it what it really reminded me of what they do with him here is it made me think of um, Severus's or not um, Sirius's 
line to Harry from Order of the Phoenix, where he says, you know, the world isn't made up of uh, of Death Eaters. Of good people and Death Eaters? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like, we joke about um, Slytherin, like, this is the house that's just growing you a bunch of, like, <laughs> evil Death Eaters and horrible people and stuff. And so, you know, there could be a, a way this story was executed in which we get to the end, we get to him pointing at Dumbledore and he he finds it difficult. And we're like, what do you, no, I've, I've spent, you know, six movies with this horrible little twerp. Of course, like he's an evil person. Of course he's going to do that. But what this, to me, what this movie did is it, it kind of borrows on that line and it puts it into perspective. And it's like, before this scene, you know, we have the flashback where where Slughorn is talking about just the what an awful act killing is. You know, like is one not is one not too much? Is the, the, this murdering what that does to this? The idea of that, you know, within lore, murdering can split your soul. So it's like we've hated him, but he's just a bully. You know, like even a bully is taken aback by this horrific act of murder. So all of a sudden now I'm like, I do, I do believe that he couldn't do it because so much of my engagement with him, because it's a fan, like a fantasy story. And because it's got magic and all of this, he fits so nicely for most of the series into, well, he's going to grow up to be this evil villain and blah, blah, blah. And then this movie reminds you like, look, we're just, he's the schoolyard bully. You know, he's got his own issues at home. And so for the movie to be like, we're not jumping, like he, just because he's awful so often doesn't mean he can make the jump to, to flat out murderer with ease. And so I found him really sympathetic. You know, he's, for the first time I started asking, you know, like, what is his home life like? You know, he's, desperately trying to please this this figure and now he's terrified of him and you know he's now out of nowhere he's just a terrified kid and i was like man between letting him be my eyes to so much of the story and felton really knocking out of the park like i wow i feel for malfoy yeah the, the line dumbledore has you know i once knew a boy who made all the wrong choices kind of going to um, your, the line you mentioned, like it's you become a Death Eater by making all the wrong choices in your youth, and then really start making them as you move into adulthood. And th- this is very much the turning point. And I, I love that Dumbledore dies for Draco. Like he dies essentially you know, to preserve his soul from this horrible choice that he's about to make. Draco freaking Malfoy. That's the guy. Like, that's the kind of man Dumbledore is. That he's, he's not going to allow his life and his, and by extension his death to be used to destroy this boy's soul. Like, no. And also to save, like he he could save himself at any point, but he knows that then Draco then Draco will die. So like, so he if he's going to die, he's going to die on his terms, so that therefore the, the this boy will not have his soul destroyed by this action. Um Dumbledore's a good chap. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> all of that. Uh just the conversation they have, like at the end of the tower, like Dumbledore is 
fully in control of that conversation. Like, um, just the slow descent of Malfoy till by the end, he is this sobbing wreck, um, who absolutely does not want to be here, but feels that he has no choice. Yeah. Really, really beautifully told story. I don't know how much I can add to that because that was both of you went through kind of the emotions of Malfoy so well, but I just want to echo and agree that it's the very first time that I actually empathize with him. Um, You know, the first time that I empathize with him. And I think you put it really well, James, when you said that he's just this scared kid, you know, with a bad home life, trying to, please unpleasable people whether that be his father or whether that be Voldemort and and he's utterly terrified of failing um but he isn't totally corrupt yet he still does have a some type of a moral center there is a line that he would even have trouble crossing and um I love that about this movie that that gives that gives us the ability to actually empathize, uh, empathize with Malfoy um, in a pretty powerful way. Yeah. Just continuing talking about the characters. Um, surprise, surprise. Once again, uh, Daniel Radcliffe is the best he's ever been. Um, and like, we get to see like an entirely new facets of his, of his abilities as an actor. Like, the, the he's always been you know very good and intense he's a great action hero here he like we get to see him in you know much more quiet moments he gets to be funny which is amazing <laughs> like he's never really had much chance at comedy and it turns out he's incredible at it um but as far as like his his arc um this way it, it doesn't really have like oh a big thing like a big journey it's just more you know, just kind of getting to know him and you know, know him by how he interacts with the people around him, his desires, like who he wants to be. And also an interesting thing I noticed is that the entire series has, has been making comparisons to between Harry and Voldemort, like pointing out all the ways in which they're similar. This one is very much about showing us just how different they are. Um, every time we go back into a memory and we see him, like how he acts and he's like, there's, there's like all, all the similarities are really just meaningless coincidences. Like every single choice they make, the way they treat people has been completely different from the beginning. Um, and then this one, Harry, Harry kind of grows into the chosen one thing where up till now he's, he's been running. He doesn't, he doesn't want this. He doesn't, um, you know, he, he's never he, always running away from the fame, just trying to get out to, to avoid that and here like he openly says to the slughorn i am the chosen one i'm gonna kill him but i need your help um he's he's he's, he's accepted his destiny and this like this is who he is gonna again it was the end of childhood and in this film he chooses his course into adulthood um and he's just really funny something that i really <laughs> like about both his performance and the movie is that the movie kind of lets him be what it lets Hogwarts be, which is like just one last celebration of the thing itself before we go into Deathly Hallows. Like, you know, he, 
we, we get scenes of him in class doing really well. I mean, obviously through the, the half-blood princess. When was but... the last time we saw class? <laughs> I mean, exactly. I guess like, we, like yeah, we, there, there are some in every film, but it's just like, there's like one in each yeah. movie since Chamber of Secrets, or since Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, but like, I, I love the part where all the students are flooding in and he and, and Ron are just standing up just like with the biggest, goofiest smiles as they watch all the students go by. Great line from McGonagall. Uh, I love the line from McGonagall. Like, take Weasley with you. He looks much too happy up there. Uh, <laughs> so funny. But like, they're, they're, they're coming towards the end of their school career and to just kind of be up there smiling, watching all these young little kids come in like entering into this world that is now has been their long established home and then just that i love the i love slughorn's party just him chilling standing behind the curtain with hermione talk, like it's it lets him just kind of be a student for a bit too and, and like you said he, he uh ron and hermione just kind of sitting on couches sitting um sitting at the weasleys just the, there's it just lets he gets to join in on like the calmness and the stillness of of the story and just despite the fact that he is actively involved in something you know the movie withholds the information from him for a bit he he knows that he's meant to you know have slughorn warm up to him there he knows some sort of purpose behind there but even he's not in on on the plot proper really you know he's he's got He's kind of trailing Malfoy and trying to figure out what's going on there. He knows he's got something to do with Slughorn. But really, this is as uninvolved in the primary plot as he's ever been. So he just kind of gets to be. And it's fun watching that. And in a way, that like that makes it the most character. Like, him being disconnected the most in this film makes it feel like it's the one that's most focused on him as a person, as a character. Like, I feel like I know him so much better here than any of the previous films despite him not you know being the driver of the action all that much when you think about the different characters in this movie whether they're the main cast or the supporting cast the film does such a great job of of giving those characters their due in that kind of alone time uh so to speak to to, to mature that character and to give us another side of that character i'll bring up one for example that a lot of people don't mention I'm not sure if it's fully appreciated how the Half-Blood Prince, how this movie takes Voldemort from a static character, which is not bad to be static if you're an antagonist, but it turns Voldemort into a round character as well um, with the flashbacks and with the memories. Um, he feels a lot more real, at least to me, in the Half-Blood Prince because of those scenes and the interaction with Slughorn than he ever did in any of the previous movies. Despite never turning up in the film. Like, he gets one shot, one flash in the scene where Harry touches the ring. Otherwise, he never shows up. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And, and, and so even... Even for Voldemort, for Tom Riddle, this movie is just setting the stage so well for, for the Deathly Hollows when it comes to that character and us getting into his twisted psyche that he 
that he had from the very beginning and the 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 mastermind that really he he was and how he just you know the darkness was such a draw to him from the beginning that it bothered an unsettled slughorn and slughorn in return buried those memories and tried to hide them uh, just that that dynamic there is so great and for for me Voldemort actually becomes terrifying because of this movie this movie is is for me why why he becomes scary and real and and a and a and a force to be reckoned with is is because of those those scenes and um and then just harry playing on those interactions and that mystery that he's unfolding um through his conversations with dumbledore and 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 those memories uh trying to get at slughorn um and his failures and his triumphs uh in in trying to get the slughorn um i just find so compelling and character rich and we haven't even gotten to at least not fully how great of a character slughorn slughorn himself is and just how phenomenal jim broadbent is in this role let's talk about the 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 hunt into Voldemort's past first and again like this, this i feel people really aren't reckoning with how well told this story is i think like like oh they cut out so many scenes of me- you know memories of them going back there's, there's like eight or nine in the book where they go back go into memories I think maybe maybe, maybe there's a lot um, and they're awesome in the book yes but but what they're forgetting is like this this is a I think what they're, I think because they're only looking for scenes like that they're missing just the way the 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 the, the, the film spreads out the story like. In Dumbledore's opening speech in the Great Hall when they first arrive at Hogwarts, he mentions Tom Riddle. He was a boy here, you know, like he was almost just a warning to the students. Like, and and it's it is going into Malfoy's story. Like, the 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 greatest the, the greatest potential weapon of the enemy is you. Like, you you you're on the verge of adulthood. You can become just like Tom Riddle was. I'm like, they're reminding us of, of who Tom Riddle was, which leads you know, going into the pensive and seeing his past. And it, it, it's like they're seeding it throughout the films. Like, yes, there are less actual scenes, but each, the, two, the two and a half scenes they give us give us way more information. But also, they just, they just cut out stuff that wasn't necessary to the story the film's telling. Like, like I, I love the scene where he goes and gets... Um, uh, Hufflepuff's goblet, but that's not necessary to the story of this film. Like we understand, we we get this the idea of what the Horcruxes are and what they mean to him, and the cost they had. We get all of that in those two scenes. Like it, it's 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 streamlining. We're still getting all the vital information, and it and most importantly, it lands emotionally. But we, we like it. I I don't think anything is really lost as far as making this a better film, and. Uh, the, the, the two scenes we get with him, the first one uh, is uh, pl- he's played by uh, Hero, Hero uh, Fine's Tiffin, who's uh, Ray Fine's uh, actual nephew. I don't know if he's a great actor, but he's freaking creepy. Like that kid, that kid's evil. <laughs> um. See, so okay, so I'm. I feel like I did not talk about Yates 
just as a as a director and his tone as much i i, I missed the boat to say everything i want to say there i'm gonna take this opportunity to say mm-hmm. just to praise him as a director uh with with this scene and talking about voldemort as a character or, or really tom as a character uh the, that first flashback i love i mm-hmm. i love so much and really there's a lot of what i love about the movie is here there are times i feel like large portions of this film feel almost like a horror movie like there is a there is a, a lot of oh, was it the zombies that did it well the, you know, there's the <laughs> zombies there's oh my gosh the shot of um katie bell just mm. like flying up into the air like that is downright terrifying to me especially when it like setting the scene in the winter and so you just got the just the white snow and the overcast got like that shot is phenomenal and very very unsettling to me and then the, and the just the blood curdling scream that went yeah and then the, the close-up on like the the mouth entirely agape like in the air like that is that is a horror scene like full stop um but i i find this first flashback like truly unsettling i think part of it comes from the like the hazy visuals and like the 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 color grading and stuff but like the kids performance is i i just think like let's see i i really do think that he's great to me in it like he's he's very like he's, he's both a kid and so like you can't entirely hit like there's still some sense of like wow i mean what all can you hold against him he's only a kid and then then there are moments where you really do see the potential for like just the, the horrifying evil that he's capable of. Like, just, I don't know. I think the performance really gets under my skin and like <laughs> the, uh, the, the wardrobe on fire in the background with that just like catching fire and their just kind of nonchalant reaction to it with, all of the the weird hazy visual and color grading <laughs> it's almost like out of an a24 horror movie to me like that scene is just it's off and it's creepy and it's weird um and then earlier you talked about like all of these things he does to establish tone I, this movie the tone is just like a vice grip to me it's so incredible and it's because of the stillness of the camera and the slow movements of of the of the the camera on the dolly and the slow performances it's i blast i I literally turned my bass to the setting bass blast on this one (laughs) and like as as that memory is ending and we're coming back out you just hear this repeating like pound and so like I, my apartment kind of shook and then you'd 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 hear the pound and then they talk more and there's just like it's not it's not really music it's just this constant like this interval of pounding vibration to to denote and signify the seriousness of what we've seen uh and like so so seeing that scene that I just found really unsettling and then coming back out and hearing this like this intervals of this 
pounding boom with and the incredible performance from Gambon, just like slowly talking, like whenever he has to hold up the wand and like he sits down on the stairs, like just, oh man, that scene is fantastic. And the tone is amazing. The use of sound and, and slow movement and color, like it's just such a powerful feeling. I have to say actually that some of the scenes in, in my opinion, some of the scenes in this movie are so haunting that I I'm shocked that it is only PG. Yeah, actually, um, it's PG. Yeah, it's PG. Wow. And I and and wow. but the film is so dour and 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 dark, and there are truly horror visions in this that just st- stick with you psychologically. That I'm just I'm stunned actually that it that it got by uh with 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 that um uh i mean that's unsettling those flashbacks with tom riddle obviously unsettling and it's an interesting dynamic because you mentioned a kid that's like yeah he's still a kid but you can see the potential for for his evil and his his draw to the to the dark it's such a stark contrast for example with like anakin right where like when we first meet Anakin as a kid, completely 100% innocent, wouldn't hurt anything, you know, in The Phantom Menace. I'm drawing a contrast between <laughs> kids that become evil, right? And characters and that, that archetype. Uh, and, and, and I find that, that contrast interesting between, you know, Tom Riddle in the Harry Potter series and Anakin in, in, in Star Wars and when we first meet both of them, one is, is innocent and sweet and doesn't seem to have this shadow about him. And, and Tom Riddle's got some of his childishness left in him, but he's already troubled. Very, very troubled. But going back to uh, the, the, this, the scenes of young Dumbledore. The second one um, is played by a Frank Delane, who was one of the leads in uh, *Fear of the Walking Dead*. He's still acting. Um, like that—that's a re- that's really good. I love how just the way he plays it as Slughorn is like openly horrified by Tom's line of questioning, but it's right along the line where he, like, he can't like. You just jump out and smack him down like you're evil. Get away! But like he's clearly so disturbed by this. But it's almost as if he can't even stop talking. Um, like the way Tom has him in the palm of his hand, and he just says like he he approaches the question with just the right line of flattery to keep him talking, even as it just gets increasingly disturbing. And it's it's like uh, Slughorn. I, I, he's not he's not a bad guy I, he might even be a, a decent one but like he doesn't want to face what's actually happening in this moment and what he knows mm-hmm. deep down is happening in this moment so he's gonna play like this is all academic right like he, he knows it's not true but he's just so terrified to face what is actually happening the evil he's actually facing that he just kind of suppresses it and goes along with the conversation and and but I just a lot of that is in Frank Delaney's performance as this 
terrifying, calculating monster that knows exactly how to get what he wants out of people. Like, he just play, plays on Slughorn's weakness as a character. Like, you know, he like Slughorn is a prey animal and he's a predator and he just knows how to manipulate like that. And then, just continuing that, just the continued hunt after that scene and Dumbledore, the, I think the full weight of what is facing them hits Dumbledore. And there's a moment where after they come out of that memory, he kind of staggers over and sits heavily on the stairs. And it's funny. We talked about there's a There's a very similar scene in Goblet of Fire where it just feels all wrong and entirely out of character. But here it feels perfect. This is old, tired Dumbledore. He's still wise. He's still in control. But I think the enormity of the challenge of what's before him is starting to sink in. He's realizing I'm not going to be here to see this till the end and I'm tired and I'm dying. And just the weight of seven Horcruxes, like it's taking me look at what it's cost to you know, to destroy like the three we already have or two, two or three. I forget how many at this point. Like again, like it's it's like it's taking a very a scene we hated from the previous film, but but working it into the story, showing us Dumbledore's weaknesses, um, and it and here it can I feel like it makes it connects us to him so much more. I, I feel like it's smart highlighting the blackened hand. I think actually does a lot to prep us for a a Dumbledore that isn't all powerful. You know who. Whenever he staggers back, I think there is a little bit of of a segue that that's showing off the the physical toll that that this is taking on him, you know. And the moment that happens after this that blows me away is where Harry they kind of they found out what he was doing. And another interesting thing is that we don't hear the word Horcrux until we see that final memory, whereas previously we heard him say, you know. What can you tell me about Horcruxes the first time they watched the altered memory? It was muffled, right? Well, you know, in the book, he, he is like, what, what, what can you tell me about Horcruxes? Uh, he asked, you know, what can you tell me about Horcruxes? And then it's muffled. Um, but in the book, like, we learn, like, like an hour of movie earlier, you know, hundreds of pages earlier. And so we're, search, we're, we're like, what are Horcruxes? We're kind of exploring that the entire film. We don't actually learn about them until this moment. And so we have this kind of exposition dump as he's going through and showing Harry you know, the diary, a brilliant, just a a brilliant J.K. Rowling retcon of taking something that wasn't a horror, that wasn't a horcrux when she wrote Chamber of Secrets, but thinking about it. Maybe one of like the greatest retcons ever, I think. Yeah. Making that one of them and, and oh, uh, Dumbledore's hand is blackened because he, you know, because he touched one and it's, this is another place where um just the the mood and the music Cooper's music just the the building intensity is like he's murdered seven people his soul is in seven places we like we can't even kill him like like even like he, number one it'd be really hard because he's really powerful and even if we could he wouldn't die he'd just come back again and so just kind of the the existential horror of the murders he had to commit the and then and then just the insurmountable task that's ahead of us and. He's talking about, and there's there's a moment that just I never noticed before, um, but uh, Double is talking about you know magic of this kind, especially dark magic, and then Harry goes and touches the ring, and it goes nuts and it starts spinning, and and we see flashes of Voldemort, and then Harry kind of twitches like him, and Dumbledore's like looking right at him, it leaves traces, um, 
And then he takes him aside and is like, and so Harry asks, you know, is this where you've been going when you've been leaving school? He says, yes. And I think I found another. And he's looking right <laughs> well, in Harry's looking. eyes. Yeah. Once again, I must ask too much of you. No, so yeah. he said, yeah. And I, and I think I found another. And he's still staring intently at him. But this time, I cannot hope to destroy it alone. Once again, I must ask too much of you. Yeah. They're telling us. Harry's mm-hmm. a freaking Horcrux in this moment. Like, if you don't know, you don't know. But, and I've I've always known watching it, or at least you know since since I've read Deathly Hallows. But I just, I I love dialogue like that that has multiple meanings. Dumbledore finally knows the truth about Harry, and after I made that realization here, there is so much sadness in the every time he looks at Harry after this, which you can interpret as you know he know, it's his approaching death. You know he's. He's approaching death. He knows he won't be there for Harry, but also he's, he's ask he's going to have to ask too much of Harry. He can't destroy it alone. Only Harry can you know choose to kill this Horcrux. That is him. And all of that kind of is, is, is hidden in the subtext of that scene. Yeah. It, it does bring up plot questions that I have though. Uh, Cause I, I know a lot of people, have you know when talking about Dumbledore as a character part of the the criticism of of his moral characters there's this idea that he's been bringing up Harry for the sake of him dying as if he knew that this is where it was all leading but this makes it feel as if this is the moment where he realizes that yeah, this is what he's going to have to do book or movie it would depend i don't i don't remember where we learned like i i'd have to watch the um the Snape's memory from Deathly Hallows again, or read it again, mm-hmm. to get the exact, you know, moments of when he knew what. Yeah, but I don't, th- I don't think he knew till like short, either shortly before Half Blood Prince, and then when he starts actually actively hunting Horcruxes, I don't know that he knew before that. Okay. So then, a common Maybe criticism of his moral character doesn't make sense. Lo and behold, the the internet is being dumb. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't say definitively either way. It would, it would take some searching. Gotcha. In the movies, it feels as if this is the moment, but in the books, yeah. Well, he he certainly was suspecting it before this, um, like because he's not like okay. reacting or anything. But okay, so the other thing though that I am confused about is it feels like so in in the book the. If I'm remembering correctly, the reveal there is is the number because, like you said, we're talking about Horcruxes, even the first time we engage with that. So it's there's seven because Dumbledore had to know how many am I after. Mm-hmm. Here it feels like Horcruxes themselves are the reveal, and it feels that way partially because they muffle the word up until that point, and then for, for line, the audience certainly, for the audience certainly, but. but the thing we, is, we'd never ever fully know what Dumbledore do. Like he, okay, to the, the end, he remains something of an enigma. But the the line that makes me question things is is he says that whenever he's talking about what all it could be, and he holds up the diary, uh, and he's you know, he, he was saying like it. I I knew that there was something powerful about the magic in that diary and then he says but until tonight i had no idea how powerful 
So it, to mm, me, that yeah. that line and muffling Horcruxes makes it feel as if it's not just an audience. Like it's it's a reveal for him as well, which is why he'd be so taken aback. Which kind of makes it a weird plot thing because he says that while he's also been Horcrux hunting, and so. I don't know. It's it's a thing that I feel like it's not an issue because he doesn't say that in the book and he already knows that there are horcruxes. He's just trying to figure out how many am I after. But by making it the movie has like because he starts off with a blackened hand, it has to have had him already hunting, but it still wants the horcrux as a reveal itself. So it feels like there's a, a little bit of, of contradiction in that scene. I would have to watch it very closely to see either way. Yeah, yeah, but maybe it, it is. It is interesting though when we talk about Dumbledore's motivations, and, and not once did I ever think he was malevolent. I don't think that that's uh, open to uh, to debate necessarily. But even in which one isn't it in Deathly Hallows one or two, where even Snape says something to the effect of that uh so you just raised him as a pig for slaughter or something like that yeah so so dumbledore is questioned <laughs> you know on this in a pretty brilliant and and straightforward uh straightforward way but i think the point though is that in the impression that i get is and you all correct me if I'm wrong, is that Dumbledore wanted this, wanted it to be Harry's choice. Yeah. He wanted, he, he raised, he raised a man who would make that choice for himself to save his friends. Yeah. And like, you, there's questions of like, should he have told him earlier? All of that. Th- those are all good questions and discussions that should be had. But he always wants, he always wants people to work with him by their own choice because it's the right thing to do. And yes, he is manipulative. Yes, like, yes, he does play the game and he's a complicated figure. And I, I don't think any one thing can be said about him that wouldn't, that doesn't need to be, um, you know, uh, qualified, but like that, th- that's the difference between the way he plays the game and the way Baltimore plays the game is he's always going to be about character and who you are as a person and he wants he wants to make you the man who's going to make the right choice. He wants to make Snape the man who's going to make the right choice in the end. He wants to make Draco Malfoy the man who's going to make the right choice in the end. That's that's what he's ultimately after. Yeah, it's it's like Dumbledore has accepted the end and essentially knows what has to be done, but it's how you get there and what you do leading up to that and the choices that you make. And how you handle those situations that make all the difference. It's almost like it's our choices that define us. All you have to decide. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Michael Gambon, like he cements himself in this film as my favorite Dumbledore. Um, he's just the, the the slight quirkiness he has at the beginning, whenever he's with um Slughorn. I do love knitting patterns. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> But the just the the again the intelligence and power he has in every scene with Dumbledore, but also the growing empathy and the growing friendship between him between Dumbledore and Harry is really cool. It's I like that they're not super buddy buddy. There is still 
a distinct awkwardness, like when they're in the train station, like, and Harry is like very nervous. Like they they care about each other, but there's also that very much. He, he's this adult authority figure that's always been something of a mystery to me. Um, and so they, they have this kind of quirky little relationship that, that feels, uh, you know, deeply heartfelt, but also Harry probably feels like he still never fully knew Dumbledore and Dumbledore's mm-hmm. an old quirky man who's set in his ways. Um, yeah. So I, I, lo- I just love how those two actors play out their friendship throughout the film. Yeah, just the, the way he delivers lines, you know, like, every day dark forces attempt to infiltrate the castle, but in the end, their greatest weapon is you. Now off to bed, pip pip. He <laughs> <Yeah>. can <laughs> deliver that line. So, and both sides, like, so like, <laughs> the intense staring and, like, staring into your soul and speaking, you know, the words of truth to, off to bed, pip pip. Like, <laughs> both sides feel true to his character. Uh, yeah, it's uh, like sweet dreams, you know, have have, you know... Have sweet dreams now. Oh, don't 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 worry about anything. Uh, I, I love the scene where it's also just a, a funny scene in how it's constructed, where where we're all standing around Ron sick in bed, like after this you know attempted yeah. murder, and then you know uh, Lavender comes in and like just hijacks the entire scene <laughs> with her and Juan Juan. Uh, one, one. and it's My just one, like one. it's it's so awkward and like the whole so scene awkward. you just see McGonagall and Snape in the background just kind of standing awkwardly <laughs> because all of a sudden they've just like been subject to this awkward teen drama that just like loudly played itself <laughs> out in front of them it's so funny to me uh, and then you know That's after so after Ron you know he says Hermione's name in his sleep and Lavender runs away, and Dumbledore just says, "Oh, to be lo- or oh, to be young and feel love's keen sting." <laughs> and it's just like it's it's just this perfect like comedic delivery. It's, uh, that is so fantastic. I, I Gambon is phenomenal. He's amazing, and, and I'm so glad that that this movie, considering its tone has very well-placed and appropriate moments of levity. Oh, this film is hilarious. It's It's got genuine humor in it, but you know what's so spectacular about this film? And I just, I can't, I can't get over how just the tonal control is so perfect oh, it's all throughout this group, movie. Man. It's so it's, strong. It is, it's, 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 it's perfect, actually. It's Clovis's dialogue, and, and, too. And even, and even those moments that, have levity, the genuine humor, and my goodness, doesn't have genuine humor. It's not out of tone, and it feels so appropriate for the situation. And you're right. I mean, it's the dialogue. It's it's the written dialogue, and how the actors uh, bring that to life uh, all throughout this film. You, you don't. The humor does not take you take you out of the moment they're like these brief isolated moments of levity and and comedy and we're and then and then we're right back to oh gosh like we're in deep (laughs) we're in we're in deep trouble you know here and even even outside of like just intentional humor and levity there's also just because of the stillness of the movie there's also a lot of moments that are just 
it's not even comedic, but they're very human. Like this, it also finds mm-hmm. room for a lot of tender moments. Like something that I, I didn't really appreciate the the first viewing, but really found myself like being like taken by was just Harry and Hermione's friendship. Like mm-hmm. her her friendship with Ron obviously evolves into something romantic, but because because of that. Uh, it starts to change the dynamic of the three. And and in her and Ron's continuously growing affection for each other, you know, Harry has always been Ron's best friend. But now it truly feels like because what she has with Ron is no longer simply a platonic friendship, Harry's kind of become her best friend as well. And to give those characters those quiet moments of tenderness where like, you know, it starts off before where, you know, she, she is able to be buddy, buddy with him and talk to him about, you know, his feelings for other people. I mean, like Cho couldn't take her eyes off you and, and order the Phoenix to be here, like with her picking up on, you know, he and Jenny and, and then the way that relates to what's going on with her and Ron, like, I, I just love those nice human moments that it finds uh, for these characters. And Harry's growing emotional maturity in moments like, you know, what does it feel like with you and Ginny? Just like, just to sit with her. It feels like this. Like, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. imagine, you know, Goblet of Fire Harry, <laughs> you know, having that you know, sense of your presence and just knowing when to just shut up and sit there with her. Um, like just the moments like where they, where they're in the library and she's putting books up on the shelves and, Oh, that effect is hilarious. Like, if you want, look at the behind-the-scenes features. You just have men sticking their their arms are like you know, they have these green screen sleeves on, and they're sticking their arms to the shelves and taking the books from Hermione and putting them back as she's kind of walking through and putting them. It's just really cool filmmaking. Um, but it's just like it's just friends talking about their life and the complications of their friendship, and I just the whole ev- all the interactions between the trio are perfect you know as the contention builds you know as you said you know when 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 her hair uh, ron and hermione are no longer on speaking terms and you know he's and he it's like his friendship with each one gets stronger in turn <laughs> i just like uh, the, the the comedic moments they find <laughs> there's two in particular the one with hermione is again in that scene in the library she's like you know she tried to smuggle you a love potion he's like really and he looks over at her and she like snaps his finger in, his fa- in her face. You know, she's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> she just smacks so him in the head with the paper. Like, uh, there's so the, the the chemistry is so good. His comedic delivery, mm-hmm. and then you know, all right, all right, I'll go with someone I like, someone cool. <laughs> Cut to Luna. <laughs> um, it's just like it, the movie has such a lightness of touch. With the humor, this is a this is a very common critique of this film is people really dislike the comedy and the way the romances play. Like it's like they view it the way we view the comedy and romance in Goblet of Fire or something. I was about to say what a what a flip. I don't I don't understand it at all. I like I find it all very delightful. Like yes, Lavender Brown is a ridiculous is ridiculous, but in a fun way. 
in the train where she goes and is breathing on the glass and drawing the heart and Harry's like turns love- over and starts playing with the armrest. He's like, I don't I love that they just let that play out. Like they don't they don't there's not a the joke isn't in the edit, the joke is in well, it's in the lack of edit to sit in the whole process of drawing it out. And then and then they keep it going and Hermione walks by. She's about to go in. She sees it and she like straightens up and keeps walking. Like again, the whole trio's dynamic and where they are personally is playing out in a gag and it's beautiful. I think Lavender's a great character and I don't think she's uh, I mean she 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 represents unbridled adolescence. <laughs> so stinking well and i actually have to hand it to the actress jesse cave yeah i mean she just i mean she played that character to a uh to to a t i mean full tilt you know and uh uh lavender is a great example of a static character that also she's a static character but she's not flat right Mm mm-hmm she she has emotion color she has color she has a personality she has motivation um and uh and she's really interesting i understand that some people find her obnoxious (laughs) annoying and and you're kind of supposed to like like you're not you're not entitled to like every single character or or not find a character obnoxious. Maybe the point is that the character is supposed to annoy you <laughs> because it that serves a purpose within the story, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, um, <laughs> just the, after the breakup, which is just clutching her spoon, staring at Ron from across the great hall. <laughs> uh, she, she's, she's doing okay. <laughs> Uh, she'll make it. She'll make it. Um, and I, I like that both Lavender Brown and her attraction to Ron and Cormac McLaggen and his attraction to Hermione are established in Weasley's, uh, Weasley's Wizard Wheezes in the beginning of the film, just silently through looks. Like, just it's it's all of this is given the time it's needed to, to slowly play out. You know, we keep coming back to it, keep checking in on it. It's not like in other films where, like, oh, every subplot we get two and a half scenes and you have to do everything you have in these scenes and that's all you're ever going to get. And, and so this one actually, we get a dozen scenes with Lavender Brown and a dozen, like, you know, half dozen with Cormac McLaggen and six. I was going to say, even Cormac. Yeah, like all, like these subplots are just given time to exist because it's not a plot driven movie. And I, I think Ron and Hermione get the most to do that, you know, the most to do that they've had since since Chamber of Secrets, like since that film, they have been in the background. This is even Harry's movies. And here they genuinely feel like a trio. And they're all each one is given you know great emotional arcs throughout. <laughs> There's just a couple of great scenes, you know, uh, Ron getting the love potion <laughs> mm-hmm. and just the dopey look, look on his face. So dope. <laughs> the moon, it's beautiful, isn't it? Divine. I find that so relatable, though, because I have felt like that uh-huh. as a as a teenage boy uh, without a love potion. Okay, yeah. so it's 
it's very very relatable uh to me in that that, that moment. his physical performance like when he goes and climbs into the bed with harry and harry's like leaning off like uh and joe <laughs> all right you're in love with her have you ever actually met her no could you introduce me <laughs> Oh, they're just—he's so much fun. And when they go to Slughorns, is like, you know, what's the matter with Wendy? And uh, he like Wendy. he comes over and hugs Slughorn. <laughs> and then as Harry and Slughorn are talking in the foreground, he goes over and sits on the back of the couch and falls over. Like it's just the sight gags, the physical performances. It's, it's I'm sorry, this is comedy, and if you don't like it, uh, I don't know. It's great though. It's so natural. Um... I don't. I think that's the best compliment I can give it. It's 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 so natural, and and these characters get to be who they are, and the performances are just exceptional, and all these individual pieces work together to make this 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 movie that you know it may have been one of those movies that that when you initially watched through the series. Um, I think you mentioned it earlier, James, that you kind of forgot or that kind of blended in with everything else. But the more you watch the series through, and me and my wife watch through the Harry Potter series around Christmas pretty much every year at this point. And so we're coming up on another rewatch uh, here soon. To me, it's the movie that starts standing out. You know, it, it's the one that's grown on me the most and stands out the most. The one that's nearly forgettable for me that I keep losing is Goblet of Fire. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's Goblet of Fire that just kind of like, it doesn't really even blend in anything else. It just kind of happens and it's over, you know, and... There's something important that happens at the end of it with Cedric and uh, Voldemort, but that's really about it. Um, that's the one that I lose when I think through all the movies, at least now, now that I've watched the series multiple times, is, is Goblet of Fire. It's, it's, it's Half-Blood Prince that just continues every single time I watch through to just like grow on me and grow on me and grow on me to become its own individual film that's distinct from what came before and and what came after it doesn't it doesn't blend it doesn't blend in and just become part of the scenery anymore you know it's an important part of the furniture yeah in the scene you know that's that's being put together yeah i, I don't really feel that way about any of the movies but I, I i understand what you're saying there are definitely there are film series where that happens um so it looks like you're going to have to go very soon. Um, do you want to just kind of give us your, I guess, your star rating for this film and where it falls in the series for you? And if you have any more final thoughts, then we'll kind of continue on. Yeah, sure. Um, I really appreciate it, guys. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a long time since I've been able to come on and talk to you guys about a movie. And this was a good pick for me uh, just because of uh, just how much I like it. Um, and... So as far as the series is concerned, and you know, I haven't looked at it for a while, but I have to, and this is not a plug. I wish it was because it'd be nice to get a paycheck for it. I have to open up Letterboxd <laughs> really quick 
uh, and 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 double check exactly where it was. I'm almost positive that I've got it in the top three. And I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I think it's my favorite. Um, sometimes I genuinely think it's my favorite. Yeah, y'all, I'm going to stick with it. I've got Prisoner of Azkaban at number one. But in fact, I have ranked Half-Blood Prince at number two and Deathly Hollows Part 1 at number three. I like it. So that rounds out my top three. Azkaban, Half-Blood Prince, and Deathly Hollows Part 1 are my top three. So Half-Blood Prince is sandwiched right in the middle. Some good movies. Uh, what do you give it out of five stars? I, I give a four and a half out of five easy. But if I was going to just gauge my affection <laughs> my affection for it it'd be like a full five but but i but i try to reserve those as much as i possibly can i think azkaban is definitely a full five no questions asked i know now all of a sudden it's cool to kind of go oh you know with some people it seems to go oh azkaban's not really the best one yes it is. <laughs> uh yes Shut it's your mouth. the best one and it doesn't matter that most people think that it's just true and you got to get over it because it is the best one. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so Azkaban's definitely a full five. You know, uh, Half-Blood Prince uh, is at least a four and a half. And so is definitely Deathly Hallows part part one. But it's so, I mean, the, the, those top three for me are so stinking close to each other and how they affect me and how I feel like they, they affect the characters and the story that it's just like tiny... Uh, tiny minuscule you know things that, that i would have to draw out to make to make distinctions between that half a star that's that you know that's missing that's how close they are and uh real quick uh where can people find you or interact with you online yeah um the best place to find me is to come join the outer rim a star wars group on facebook yeah and I am an admin there. So is Gabe and James and Drew, who still needs a webcam, I think. <laughs> he does. And uh, yeah, and I'm going to continue to give him grief about that until he gets one. And, uh, and, 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 and Jeff, who's there sometimes. If you're hearing this, Jeff, we love you. <laughs> but you're, you know, you know, you know, you know. So anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> come, come find us on the outer at the, the outer rim, a, a star Wars group on Facebook and talk star Wars with us. Um, but you know, you may find us in some other groups too, just to talk about movies in general. And I know they'll like this. You could join the feel and film discussion group and come talk to us about movies just in general there. We're all members and, uh, Aaron has a great group over there mm -hmm. at feeling film. So I figured I would plug them as well. All right. So we're going to keep going, but thanks a lot for coming on. This has been fun. Yeah, it sure has. And I am going to go to sleep. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> Talk to you guys See later. You All right. Um, so continuing on uh, the character, the, the, the big zoo character in this film. Um, and one where my love for him is so much of it is from the film. Like for, for most of these characters, I adore them from the books and their, their film versions are kind of lesser, but with, uh, with Horace Slughorn played by Jim Broadbent, I think I might like him more in the film than in the book, which is, a, which is a real rarity for this series. 
Oh boy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I have so much to say, but I will let you go first, James. So what do you got to say about Slughorn? I mean, it's already unfair just because it's Jim Broadbent. <laughs> and I just, I really freaking love Jim Broadbent. He, uh, I mean, I've loved him since seeing Narnia. But like, the uh, hot fuzz, like, <laughs> ever since that, I'm like, this, this man is won't be running out of chunky it's... monkey anytime soon. <laughs> A big bushy beard. Uh, so I remember whenever. So something I would do actually whenever I was reading the books is because I guess I'm not as creative as other people. I would look up the cast for the film so I knew who to see and hear in my head whenever I read the book. Uh-huh. And so whenever I got to the Half Blood Prince, I looked up the IMDb for the movie, and I saw that Slughorn was Jim Broadbent, and I was like. That makes me so much more excited to get to the movie. Um, so all that to say, I love him. I, he's got incredible comedic timing. He just looks and sounds like so distinct and specific. And he's like, he's one of those actors who just has such a, I don't know, there's such a vibe to him. It's like, I, is it possible to not like him? Is it possible to like, for him to just give a performance where you're like, ah, not really into that. Like, and the thing is, he does kind of go ex- like pretty eccentric with like with the I don't know, the thing he does with his eye, where he's like always kind of like struggling to keep one of his eyes <laughs> open. And he's, I don't, it's it's a silly performance, but one that has like real seriousness to it as well. And man, I <laughs> I really love him. Yeah, like, this is a difficult role because I think a slightly diff a, por- a performance that's pitched slightly differently. Um could make him a very unlikable person because he's like he's he's probably like a full-blown narcissist but i guess like a harmless one if you know if such a creature exists but that's the beauty of fiction is you can, you can make any kind of character you want and like so he's he's so completely mercenary in how he views the world but also like just, just he um like he's there's so many layers like the, the line you know there can be no light without the dark as far as myself i always stri- i always strive to live within the light i suggest you do the same like he's a good person he's you know he, he does view most of his relationships with other people in you know how can this benefit me but also like he's a he's a wonderful teacher like uh, aside from lupin he's probably the best teacher we see in the book like he's passionate about his subject he wants his students to succeed like even even like even students that don't fall within his you know his special slug club like when you know, ron's had a love potion all right i'm gonna take care of him i know he's sad so i'm gonna give him a pick-me-up or with hagrid like he he goes to the funeral and he, he gives this eulogy for um your body will decay he's like a weirdly both a lovely person but also it's this strange mix where he like he like he barely acknowledges ron exists except when ron's in need and then he goes and helps him like it's which is then just the the Jim Broadbent's ability to just generate pathos out of thin air, like those moments where he's you know he's silly most of the time, but that, that then the scene with Voldemort where he's like, "Good God, boy, what are you even asking me? This is horrifying." Um, and you know it's like he's got this very simple philosophy: he's gonna do good. This, you know he's gonna you know he's gonna do well, but he's gonna take care of himself. I think a very small he, his view of the world is very small, and so like he doesn't he doesn't want to face the world's problems, and like so when that scene when he's faced with true evil, he kind of just he just kind of ignores it and it tries to you know, if I ignore it, it'll maybe it'll go away. 
that ha- you know that happened and it you know it helped Voldemort on his rise to power and i think the 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 tell the most telling thing about slughorn is that he is truly ashamed of that like he's not afraid to reveal that because of like legal censure or things that might happen to him he doesn't want to reveal that cuz he knows he messed up he did the wrong yeah. thing and people got hurt and he is ashamed that anyone would know that about him and I, I love that it's what Harry says about his mother. It's 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 the death of Louis. Like that's the proof that it wasn't some sort of like, oh, I, I don't want to, I don't want people pointing the finger at me, because it, it it's his own personal guilt and his involvement in what led to Lily's death that had him fess up. Amazing, but just, yeah, like it's it's just a, a really complicated character and. I think Jim Broadbent adds several layers of his own and just whether, whether he's being funny and charming and just a wonderful teacher, or he's being this really sad, broken old man who with, with a lot of regrets that he tries to not, not think about like every facet of that character is just fascinating and so, so lovable. And that leads us to the, the Felix Felicis scene. Um, wonderful scene in the book possibly better in the movie uh they really play up the comedy and this is where where dan radcliffe just gets to show us an entirely new side of himself well then by all means sir accompany <laughs> exactly like just like the, the the manic gleam in his eyes and he's like this like kind of pent-up energy like he's just drank like five red bulls it's it's, it's a choice it is <laughs> It's not like the obvious choice from the book, but I love that Felix is just like that potion has just been interpreted as basically just speed. The non sequiturs he has are amazing. Like, you know, and Hermione's like, remember, Slughorn usually goes to dinner and then he goes for a walk and then he goes back to his office. Right. I'm going down to Hagrid's. <laughs> it's like, you know, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Or Felix does. <laughs> he walks by a kid. Hi! <laughs> he walks by some <laughs> random kid. It's just so much fun. Yeah. And I'll be like, Harry, I really must insist we go back to the castle. That would be counterproductive, sir. What makes you say that? No idea. <laughs> and then, of course, the great line that after Hagrid's talking about all the reeds and spiders put people off, you know. Kill it! My oldest friend he was. <laughs> it might be the eyes and the, the pincers. <laughs> And Hagrid's look like, uh, yeah, I guess that too. <laughs> <laughs> what a great gift. And then just the, the way he's standing next to Hagrid, like, you know, Slughorn's eulogizing, Hagrid's weeping, and he's just standing there, kind of like a dork, trying to look serious, but he can't. Cause he's so... <laughs> it's also, I love the, uh, whenever we cut to Hagrid and Slughorn, like singing their drunk songs and Harry's just got this big gleeful <laughs> smile on his face sitting on a chair too tall for him so they really get to emphasize this like childish look where he's kicking his legs and oh yeah it's so good, good. and then uh the scene breaks my heart <laughs> it's just i love the slow evolution where it starts to become serious even before hagrid passes out where he's you know, talking about his goldfish francis and then he was gone and then he Hagrid passes out, and then kind of Harry moves in for the kill, and he like just again he's, it's the Felix Felicis. He knows exactly the right thing to say, you know, to make Slughorn see the light. 
um, and go tell for, you know starting just you know telling him about my mother you know, Slughorn's greatest shame and and the, this the great the, the pain at, at losing one of his favorite students and also feeling like he was partially his fault oh, just the pleading in his eyes you know please don't think badly of me uh, like that, that's that's his greatest fear oh, just the story of Francis the Goldfish, it's, a, it's an entirely, it's an enti- a, completely a movie edition. And I think this is the film where I really noticed Steve Clovis. Like, holy crap, he is a great writer. Like, up until now, it's been, this ad- these adaptations are really strong. Like, Steve Clovis is doing a good job. Here it's, oh my gosh, he is amazing. There are so many just, and, and previously, most of the best lines were you know directly from the book. But this one, there are so many just completely unique lines to this film that are so powerful and they fit, they fit like a glove into this story being told. And he's just telling the story of this goldfish that Lily gave him. And then one day he was gone. As you know, I came downstairs the day the bowl was empty. It was the day your mother, and he doesn't even finish the line. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, you be brave, professor. Be brave like my mother. And just the, the 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 whole cherry on top as he's pulling the memory out and his hands are shaky and Harry's hands come mm. come on screen and steady his hands. It's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. It's it's all it's just in the direction, you know, the, it's so quiet. Like it doesn't have we don't need big speeches or huge emotion. But there's still so much feeling in that quiet little moment. Like it's one of the best scenes in the series. Mm. And I think people get you know, people get caught up in plot and what's happening. And it's like, like, look at what's happening with these people. A couple, a couple, uh, before we talk about the idea, there are a couple critiques I do have. Um, they're, they're pretty small. One is um, the Burroughs scene is one of the really popular ones to criticize. And pretty much the only critique of this movie that I do agree with, when they go back to the Burrow and the Death Eaters come, like it, it's, pretty obviously a scene that was added because they realized wait we just we just cut the massive battle at the end out, out of the book well i guess we gotta add some action somewhere else yep i didn't even think about that until this viewing and i was like do we have any action if, if we if we don't include this I'm like what we really don't no. um I, I, I do like it uh, the way it, it shows the death eaters growing power and their boldness and it continues to make the world less safe like even the burrow isn't safe anymore but it just it does feel kind of weird like it comes out of nowhere and it doesn't go anywhere like, like we go into deathly hallows part one and the burrow's back and like it does it just it, it really feels kind of random yeah it, it's that randomness that really hurts it and the, i think one of the the biggest problems with it is that you know, the book is very intentionally paced. It's very slow. It just lets things just be. And the movie does a really good job of recapturing that. So whenever anything artificial is introduced, you really feel that. And so it doesn't feel like the movie is heading this way. And then even more um, to the detriment of the film, it doesn't feel like it learned how to steady itself very well right after where it's like we cut from that and it's just, you know, nowhere you go is safe. But like they, they were looking at the at the newspaper, and we're just, but we're just back at Hogwarts. Like after this whole thing, we're just back. We're like, oh man, boy, they're they're bold, aren't they? Anyways, and it's like it's, it's there's not at all a strong transition between that, and it's because 
in the story, there shouldn't have to be need of a transition where it wasn't interrupted. I, I do like before that, though, where it's just it's Christmas at the Weasleys. But even that isn't the same. It feels much colder. Everyone looks a little skinnier. The clothes are a bit more ragged. Like it feels like a scene in like World War Two in England, like at, like during the Blitz, where like it's they look weird, like weirdly put out in that. Like, yeah, like, the war, the they're feeling it. They're trying to be, you know, they're trying to be joyful, trying to be family, but also a war is happening, and, and you can feel it as they're celebrating Christmas joyfully. Um, other big issue, Jenny, uh, uh, poor Jenny. Um. So I think Chris Columbus and casting and you know, the casting director, they did one of the greatest jobs of all time in casting the child, the, you know, the child cast for this film. Like they lucked out with, I guess, the four main kids, you know, Harry, Ron, Hermione and, and, and Draco and the ones around them, Seamus, uh, Neville, uh, like, like they're either either great or good enough to get through you know get through their lines and like and, and they, they grew up into being good actors like all the, the those main four they're still acting in a lot of things Bonnie Wright um didn't grow up to be an actress unfortunately it's it's, it's not her fault like I, I I feel terrible um you know bashing on her because you know, she came in as a kid and she grew up and just this wasn't her talent. But, like, I think her performance is doesn't doesn't work, and by extension, Harry's romance with her doesn't work. Um, it feels like the way some people might might criticize the quiet stillness of of the performances in general. It's like it feels like you're applying my experience with her performance to everybody because yeah. I see people call the performances from a lot of people in this stilted. I don't feel that with everyone else. I definitely feel that with her. And and again, there are other scenes where people just stand around and talk and it feels very intentional. And the scene where she ties the shoes, that it does feel like it's a so my oldest sister uh directed high school plays and that scene both in the both in the performance and even in in the staging it feels very like stage play like high school stage play where like she comes up and they stand across from each other and they just like stand there and talk for a little bit and everything is like really stilted and emotionally not present and I don't know. Yeah, there's a one is like she's just like the character in the book, Jenny, by the time by Order of the Phoenix, like she's this really feisty firebrand. Um and that's a part of the attraction is just how free she, Harry Harry feels like kind of oppressed sometimes and she's just kind of free and she just does what she wants and she's you know always quick for, for you know to go into a confrontation if she believes something wrong is happening like and she's just, she's just there, there's so much personality to her in the book and and bonnie wright doesn't isn't able to capture any of that and then and i, I think the, thing, the difference is like if you watch her face versus when she's delivering lines nothing's really happening on her face it looks like she's thinking about her lines yeah me. that's the feeling that i got and it kills the romance because like like Daniel Radcliffe has chemistry with everyone in this series. I don't care like Gary Oldman, David Thewlis, Ron Hermione, Michael Gambon, like everyone he has put with in this entire film, he has incredible chemistry with. But when he's in the scene with Bonnie Wright, it's like there's 
antique chemistry. All the air is sucked out of the room. And and I also I, I do believe this is also a failure of David Yates in you know as as a, in directing actors. Like the way he directs these scenes, they don't like she he should have seen that she can't do this. And so like she can't, you know, just stand there still and emote the feelings I need. But he still made her do that. And and it makes her look really bad. Because she's like standing there still and the camera's in her face and she's supposed to be going through a range of emotions and it's not happening. So he should have, like, he should have, you know, stepped in. Okay, let's try some other things. And maybe he did. Maybe this was like the seventh thing they tried and it's still not working. So I don't want to say like definitively it was his fault, but I do feel like the director should have also like, okay, my very cold, not, I don't want to say my cold, repressed kind of objective lens that I ask these characters to act through is not working for this actress. I should do something else. You know, maybe give her more things to do, some interactions, like so she can kind of have like, rather than having the camera in her face, like maybe she's doing something and talking at the same time. Like, you know, liven it up a bit. You know, don't, don't put all of it on this yeah. poor girl. And it doesn't happen, so. And also, while we're laying part of the blame on David Yates, I think their scene in the room of requirement is bad from the ground up. Yeah. <laughs> like I that's that's just even with the right actress, I think that is a very misguided scene. It's hard to tell because it doesn't work from the moment it starts. Like is that because of you know these characters don't work together or is it because you know but yeah, it is I I, I feel like he's going for this very dreamy kind of mood yeah. to it. It's but it doesn't it, it feels like the stylistically it doesn't even feel like it meshes with the movie. Like the, her out of her, like, you know, close your eyes, keep them close. Like with what they're doing and then coming back into the frame for the kiss and then exiting frame and being gone. I'm like, what, what is, we're just supposed to hide a dang book in here. Why are we doing all this weirdness? What the frick? I, I, I really love this movie. I think this scene is bad. Yeah, it doesn't work, and yeah, the, the, that that's a, that's a major plot in this in this book and the next book, and so like I think you know someone who would a better actress could have salvaged it, but oh my gosh, it's like for a film that is all about you know this delightful delicate character chemistry. I I didn't plan to spend this much time bashing her. <laughs> I'm sure she's a wonderful person, um, but yeah, she's just kind of out of her league here. Yeah, but that's pretty much all my complaints of the film. So moving to the, the, the final uh, scene, getting the Horcrux, uh, we talked about the opening on the rock with the waves and the music, and it's amazing. And then moving into the caves. It's funny. I I always thought, okay, these caves are a bit over-designed. Like, you're trying too hard to be cool fantasy. Pull it back a little. And then I heard them reference, uh, you know, Chris, uh, Quartz Crystal Caves. And I Googled it. And I was like, oh, that's that's pretty much what quartz caves look like, but yeah, it, it's a very striking uh, set. Just the the way the light plays out, the stillness of the water. Uh, J- Josh talked about just the the really creepy, unnerving atmosphere. Then we get to the island, and the potion scene is. I wish they played out a little longer, but even so, it's really horrifying. It has one of the most gut wrenching images to me which is Gambon's eyes just full of tears and then slowly opening his mouth for the last sip. Like, that image breaks me. 
I don't know, like it's like seeing your father cry for the first time or something. It's like this is Dumbledore. He knows everything. He's never been put out. He's always in control. And he's screaming like a madman in agony and fear and pain. And now I have to be the adult. It's like something childlike about his cry. Yeah. Like, and Harry has to be the adult and continue hurting him. It's, it's, it's so, it's a cruel scene. It's so cruel. Why would you do this to us, Rowling? Yeah, Gampon is so freaking good. And then this, and then like the stillness afterwards was like water, and Harry's trying it's to get so it, creepy. and going down to the water like no, no, please don't, 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 and he just uh. and they go full dead marshes on you. <laughs> oh, and then the image Gandalf, not Gandalf, might as well be Gandalf, Dumbledore, <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore orchestrating a cyclone of fire, like. One of the most iconic images from the series. They knew after that freaking awesome like ball of water from Order of the Phoenix. Like, <laughs> all right, we we've shown freaking Dumbledore off. We can't have him do something lame. Like he's got to continue that power. Yeah. Then we go back to Hogwarts, and with that scene you mentioned, where it's we follow Draco as he kind of slowly walks <sighs> through the school, and just doom is building. This, A level uh, of dread of impending doom and dread and that is just like oh god and death eaters in hogwarts like it's the school will never be the same after this it's, it's been defiled evil has That's... entered you know in ways it never has before it's like it's so violating that's the that's the feeling that i got this time Th this idea of like just this unholy violation of it uh because so like I said, with, with that first scene with Draco and he's he's just talking about I'm not going to be here. It's intentionally distancing himself from Hogwarts. But the scene where Bellatrix bursts all the windows, it's Draco who stands in horror as this, this sanctuary is transgressed, you know, and it's just there's something so horrific about these vile people wandering the halls and kicking the glasses. And it's like, you shouldn't be here. You are fundamentally opposed to what this place is. And the minkling here is just wrong. And then I got a freaking set Hagrid's ha uh, hut on fire. Ugh. Yeah. And I love Draco's horror at what he's done consistently throughout that scene. <laughs> just the, the, mo the moment they apparate back to the castle. Speaking of that, I, I, Okay, what is if that's what apparition is? And I love the effect Yates create Yates has, where it's like these swirly tendrils that fold in on themselves and vanish. That's an amazing effect. So what the frick is the wispy, smoky flying thing? I don't know. Um, I wish he didn't do it so much. He invented a new power. Yeah, <laughs> like, like I, I get why you use it. It's a really striking image, particularly in that opening scene with the bridge. But it's it's too much. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that. That opening scene is phenomenal. Oh man, them flying through the just watching the bridge collapse, watching like it's it's one thing we talked about, you know, the death of Cedric. Like things can't go back. A kid has died. It's this feeling of like it's a point of no return. We get that again. At least I get that again. Where it's like we just watched a bridge of muggles, and die. not just that's like, the bridge. This is it's the Millennium Bridge. This famous London landmark. Exactly. Yeah. Like this. The 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 evil of Voldemort cannot 
be contained to just the world of magic. Like he is breaking out from this world into ours and, and his evil is being inflicted upon the real world. And that was this addition, like this next step of, we are moving further and further beyond what is acceptable and what we are familiar with and what we thought was capable of happening. Yeah. I love it. Like when, when Harry and Dumbledore apparate back to the astronomy tower, holy crap, what a set. Um, but when they apparate back there and you know, some, it just, it's, it's wrong. Like the storm is starting to break in the, you know, the edges of the sound, the sound system and, you know, Dumbledore is weak and, you know, make, making uh, the, the chapter of the book, you know, the lightning struck tower, like what a title. Um, and again, like even in this moment, Dumbledore is in charge and he tells her, you know, whatever happens, you cannot be seen. You know, I have to save Draco, but you have to survive and making him promise. And so we trust him. There must be a plan. Dumbledore is Dumbledore. Dumbledore can't die. He has a plan. It's going to be all right until it isn't. Ah, and, and like even when Snape arrives, like. Well, well, we'll have to talk about Snape later, but I love the way he enters the scene with his wand on Harry, as if he's about to, he's going to stun Harry if Harry does any, any kind of Harry-ish thing and tries to enter the action. He's going to save his life. Like, th that's what he's doing in that moment. Yeah, just the ability up to that scene and the Avada Kedavra happens so fast and it's over and you're like, what is, what is even going on? I don't understand. Um, and you know, we're right there with Harry, like up and right up until he, you know, Snape said those words, we're all convinced that Dumbledore is going to do something. He's going to pull a Gandalf and jump off the tower onto a, a flying eagle or something. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's so, it's crazy. And that, that kind of brings us to our conversation about Snape. <laughs> I guess, did, did you know he becomes a good guy by the end of the series at this point? Uh, Yeah. Okay. That was one of the things I had spoiled for me. Yeah, I didn't. I knew. I had seen the trailers to Deathly Hallows Part 2 where he's like, How could you stand where he stood when you looked him in the eyes and killed him? A man who trusted you. So, like, I knew. I knew the. Like, I. That, uh, you know, Snape was a bad guy. But throughout the series, no, he, no matter how infuriating and horrible he is, and he is, he is horrible. This the books still build up a grudging trust for Snape. Um, the whole you know Dumbledore trust Snape, and then you know him coming through and saving Harry's life several times, and like you know he's he does everything wrong in his everyday life, but where it counts, you know he steps up and does what is right for the, you know as far as for the world, and then you have the opening scene with him and you know and uh, Narcissa and Bellatrix, and oh, that scene broke my heart. I'm like no. No, Snape. Like I, I even started to trust you, and he and he gives these really great answers as to you know, what he was doing and why he's still on, in the, on the evil side. And then the book kind of lulls you into a sense of security, like, well, Dumbledore trusts him, and they have these conversations, and it's like, what's going on? Like there has there has to be a plan. And no, there wasn't, as far as the film is concerned. The way all that plays out is so freaking good. It's just heartbreaking. So like when this happened, you you knew it was all going to come around again. Yeah, I didn't know how, and it, well, I didn't get any sort of specifics. I just it was between there was some comment made about 
a character change. I saw somebody, I kind of picked up on this, this weird idea. We've talked about it in previous episodes of this whole people trying to pretend retroactively that Snape is some sort of great human, just this awesome person, Loki the whole time. Uh, and obviously, no, he's a terrible person. But I, I picked up on that and I had seen, it's weird how much you can extrapolate from gifts, but I had seen the, <laughs> the always gif. Between yeah. that and kind of a perception I've picked up on him, I'm like, ah, I know he's a good guy. And it, and it, it moved beyond like a, I have a sneaking suspicion to where like, again, I didn't see the specifics of anything, but it was like, I, I know he ends up being a good guy, which makes it hard to like really engage with the feeling of betrayal that you're meant to have, which I, I really regret. I really wish that I got to have that moment of like screaming, no, you <laughs> betrayed him. Yeah, but again, Snape is amazing in this movie. <laughs> His little Snape moments. Once again, you astonished with your gifts, Mr. Potter. Gifts mere mortals could only dream of possessing. How grand it must be to be the chosen one. McGonagall's <laughs> <laughs> just staring like, just kind of like eyes going back and forth. <laughs> or at the party, you know, you just bought yourself a month's detention, Mr. McLagan. Not so quick, Mr. Potter. <laughs> I love that. That was like classic, like to me, source for Stone Chamber Secrets level of like, oh, we're having fun bad guy Snape, you know. I'm just... <laughs> the headmaster is traveling. Traveling where? He just stares at him <laughs> and walks off screen. <laughs> that, 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 that scene, we, we catch the tail end of him and Dumbledore, you know, have you ever considered that you asked too much? Do you, that you take much for granted. Has it ever crossed your brilliant mind that I don't want to do this anymore? And like he's so good. And you're like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. But again, that speaks to how mercenary, just how cold and calculating Dumbledore can be. Like once you take the entire journey of Snape into account, he really, really used Snape. And Snape deserved it. But like there's something very cold and almost disturbing about Dumbledore's relationship with Snape and yeah. the, the plan they had together. You know, we're, uh, it's whenever Snape is like challenging him on what he's doing with Harry and Dumbledore is like, don't tell me you've grown fond of the boy. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> he plays kind of mean with him. Yeah, Snape's not a good guy, so serves you right. Um, <laughs> but just another fa uh, fantastic performance from Alan Rickman. Um, then we have you know, the the Harry pursues them, um, and you know, he gets stunned, and we have the half blood prince reveal, and this is some of, this is where that uh, people really criticize the film, but I think it's a problem in the book. I don't like that reveal was never all that important to the book. Like, it's it's a beautiful title, like the half blood prince. It's so evocative, but as far as like the importance of the title to the plot and story of the book, this is probably the most irrelevant one. Um, yeah. so like that, that reveal is like, Oh, oh that's kind of cool. That's all you get in the book. Yeah. Um, so like, I don't, I don't think it's, it's not, it's only a valid criticism in, in the film as it is, as it is also to applying it to the book. Yeah. It, it does fall flat. I think where I think it's, it becomes more of a problem in the film. Cause I agree. It's in the grand scheme of things. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, you just killed Dumbledore. I don't care about the book. Yeah, like, 
the the book it, the book isn't Tom Riddle's diary. It's like it's so, it becomes so by the end of it, it is entirely uninvolved with the narrative. But I think where it's I don't where where it has at least more meaning in the book is one it's it gets brought up so much more. It's so much more of a presence, even if it's not this plot driving thing. It has a lot more of a presence, and there's there because of how much Hermione's looking into it the idea of who could this be is way, way more present. And I think because in the book series, even in, you know, the Order of the Phoenix with the, um, the occlumency, uh, that's right. That's it, right? Occlumency. Occlumency. Yeah. With, with those things, you, when you get more of a peek into his background, finding out that like Voldemort, he kind of like came up, with a title to give himself, it, it, it feels like the the reason it's called the Half Blood Prince is because is, is because this book rests upon this final act made by Snape, and so Snape as a figure is important. And so, if we're gonna name the book after Snape in this defining moment, how can we name it after him without giving it? giving it away so we give him a new nickname and we call it by his nickname and so you're like oh the book's about what's going on with snape and who are sneaky about telling us that but because of how little we care about who the half-blood prince is in the movie whenever he says i am the half-blood prince like oh i kind of forgot about that but honestly so i'd forgotten about at that point in the book i the book's long since been forgotten. They've hid it away. It's so, over. Okay, so I, I, oh, I think the two big things is is one, even though it has been forgotten at the point in the book, it was still like, whenever this, the book is like 600 pages long, you really do have a long time to be like, this is a thing. I'm constantly hearing them talk about this. Like, yeah. it's it's in my mind. It's, it's now buried itself into my mind where I'm aware that this is an artifact. And two, I think part of the benefit of it being in the book is because you're reading it and you're reading it in, in a different tone in a in a way that makes sense. Whereas the movie, it, it reads the reveal and it, again, to be fair, it's, it's playing it as a reveal as it's played in the book, but I can, you'd almost read it in a voice that makes more sense. Whereas in the movie, like he's saying it, like it's something we were all wondering, like I am the half blood prince, as if it's like, a, I'm your father level of reveal. Like, the scene is played all My all the short is of the con. <laughs> Oof. Uh it's like it's all but short of the dun dun dun, you know. And <laughs> so because the movie chooses to play up the reveal aspect while also having lo- very largely downplayed the presence of the book itself. It, it's a it's a genuine criticism of both, but I do think it's a little bit but I, I think it's telling the you could you could cut the book out of the film, and I don't think it would hurt the film, really at oh, all. Yeah, like, I you, get the, you get the potions like it's a, it's a bigger the the potion stuff is a bigger part of the book. But even and so like it's it like books are so different in every single way in how they tell a story. So like I can't say about the book, but I think as far as an adaptive choice of the film, you could cut it out and it wouldn't be different. Except you have to name it after the book, so you have to justify the name. Uh, it, it's definitely a conundrum. 
But yeah, it, it just it, it doesn't work. But it doesn't really matter because I don't really care. Dumbledore's lying dead, and Harry goes back, and uh, the the scene like, and I and I heard some complaints that they well they cut the funeral. No, we had Dumbledore's funeral. We definitely have Dumbledore's funeral in this movie. You have you know Harry, you know just it's again it's quiet. The emotion is so underplayed. You just his hand on his chest. And the, the 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 camera panning across these people faces this, the, the people's faces as they slowly raise their wands to the sky at, in this act of tribute to the, I, the greatest man they've ever known. I love the light drowning out the oh. the dark mark. Like that's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because this Dumbledore is dead on the ground. And yet, even in light of that, it's not even, oh, this is the thing that just happened. Like, he's before us, he's dead. But uh, I thinking of, it's it's become one of my favorite quotes in all of film. The the last Jedi quote, like, we are what the, the, they grow beyond. Oh, that, uh, I thought you were talking about the spark. Okay. <laughs> oh, ahead. sorry. No, the, that line is too convoluted and weirdly worded to me. <laughs> um, but, but that idea, like, I... It's it's anytime there's any sort of like the idea of legacy is brought up or or the idea of teachers ushering in the next generation, that line has really become something I think of, of, of this idea that we are going to be remembered based on the actions of those that come after us. And so Dumbledore is dead on the ground and all of those who he's affected you know, Luna is there crying. Hagrid is obviously crying in the back. Like everybody's there. We've all these people that he's positively affected. And even with him dead there, they raise their wands and the, the light of their wands drowns out the dark mark in the sky. Like that is the man he was. His death didn't, like it depresses everybody. It's, it's obviously horrifyingly sad, but you get the feeling that through his actions, the light is going to live on. And it's, it just ends up being a really, a bittersweet scene. Like there's a lot of hope in that scene, but there's also a lot of sadness. Yeah. I love that the hope is never allowed to die. Like, yes, the, the, you know, our greatest, the, you know, the greatest warrior in this fight is gone, but all of us, we're going to stand together and we're going to drive away the darkness that's above us right now. And, Going into that final scene again, again on the astronomy tower, they make so much good use of that set, um, and just like, yeah, th- this is over. Hogwarts is done. School is done. We're gonna go on this crazy trip. We're probably gonna die, but it's what we gotta do. Like the the, the like it, it's it's like if I had to like pick like what maybe one film to be you know to uh. To 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 uh, describe the word bittersweet, it'd be Fellowship of the Ring, but also this one, <laughs> just the end. It's the, the the weird mix of emotions, the the calm, the peace. I love that the whole film has been overcast. It feels like dusk, and now at the end is finally sunset. Um, like the whole film has felt felt like it was on the verge of sunset, and the sun is finally setting, and now it's truly over. And we're like, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do it together. We love each other. Ah, uh, but oh, it's going to be a big, big thing to do. It, it's my favorite final, final moment of the entire film series. 
like that last scene. It, it, I mean, it's definitely my, it's my favorite final shot. Just, I, I was getting like kind of choked up <laughs> this rewatch, just letting like watching Fox fly over and fly away into the sunset uh, and the slow fade to black. It's uh, mwah, incredible. Yeah. It's it's uh, it, it it's the per- perfect ending again. It's all about the mood. Um, any other particular things you wanted to mention before we kind of close out? Yeah. So last scene I want to highlight. Uh, I love the bathroom fight. There's I the pulling out all the sound, removing any semblance of like intentional composition almost for a lot of it, where it's just like it's handheld really grimy almost like born like we're just like we're just it's we're running through things are blowing up wands feel dangerous it's like bullets going by and the the shock and surprise of the septicentrum spell like that that whole scene and then this is why i was surprised to hear the pg like there's a lot of blood (laughs) that scene uh and just the look, the shock on Harry's face because it is so abrupt and it is such a weird, like boots on the ground style of filmmaking. I don't know. I, I think that scene is fantastic. I, I love the build up to that scene where, you know, uh, Katie comes back and Harry's talking with her. And then, you know, Malfoy walks in and just freaks out. And we kind of follow him as he's kind of running away through the castle, like terrified that he's going to be exposed now. Um, but that's what leads to his breakdown. Like, there's a whole build up to that fight as well. That's really great. Um, <laughs> I got I, 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 just a, a couple little things we got to ma- mention before we go out. Uh, Ivana Lynch as Little Lovegood continues to be a delight. Uh, <laughs> just sitting at the, the, the at the breakfast table with the lion hat. Uh, um, you know, how do I look? Perfectly ordinary, brilliant. I just I love you. Know, I'll go with someone I like. Someone cool. <laughs> Cut to Luna. And like her, her energy is so so at home in this weird little movie. You know, the brief scene in uh, Weasley Wizard, Weasley's Wizard Weasley's is great. How much for this? Five galleons. I'm your brother. Ten galleons. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to have good Weasley's back. Well, they were in order things, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Helen McCrory has some Alfoy. Like, she has one scene but she does a lot with that scene a really striking visual design for her character just the the class and poise she radiates and the the fear and love for her son like she barely even talks in that scene it's mostly you know it's just a uh bellatrix kind of going on and on like she she's doing so much in that moment really good <laughs> just, oh, another great understated harry quip you know the thing about an unbreakable vow you, know, you can't break it. Thanks. I worked that out, I worked that out for myself, funnily enough. <laughs> like, he's like, his, his little comebacks here and there are so funny. Yeah, it's a good place to end. Harry is great in this movie. All right, so moving into our star rating and ranking, what do you give this film out of five stars, uh, James, and how do you rate the series so far? So I, I gave it like a, a four the first time I watched it, and it wasn't like one of those strong four. It was like, I really like this, like a lot. And so three and a half is probably a bit too low. So I, I, I'll i go, I'll give it the four. Uh, rewatching it this time, this is a very, very strong four and a half. Like 
I love this movie now. I liked it a lot before. I like truly love it now. And it, it just blown away by so much about it. And also kind of blown away that there's so much about it that I love now that just was not where my head went whenever I thought about the movie beforehand. Yeah, I think Yates is phenomenal in this. His, the direction is incredible. The tone is just incredible. It's, it's stunning to look at. It's such a unique little movie that's we it's it's hilarious and it's somber and very glum and dour and and slow and still i don't know it's it's a weird it's a weird blockbuster like that's what oh. it's easy to forget like it's this is a blockbuster this is a major tentpole and it's like the most quiet slow moving blockbuster ever and so I don't know. It's so cool. I, I respect it. I love it and respect it more than I did on the first watch. So four and a half out of five. Um, as for my ranking, so I uh, changed from last week. I realized I think I actually do like Chamber of Secrets more than Order of the Phoenix. It's Those are really close to me. And I I prefer like the performances and the, the themes and stuff of Order of the Phoenix more but it has, I just think it has more issues than Chamber of Secrets does. And I love those Halloween vibes. So I think my, my new ranking of the series is uh, number one, Prisoner of Azkaban. Number two, Order of the, or sorry, number two, um, The Half-Blood Prince. Number three, Chamber of Secrets. Number four, Order of the Phoenix. Number five, The Sorcerer's Stone. And number six, The Goblet of Fire. Yeah, like for me, like the first with David Yates proved that he was like an immensely confident filmmaker with a strong vision, a strong point of view, and he knows how to handle a massive film. Like with Order of the Phoenix, that was proven. This film, I feel like he proved that he's a genuine artist. Um, and I, I don't mean this to denigrate any film in the series or any other filmmaker, but. This movie is a work of art. Every frame, every moment, every scene, every single choice being made is evoking a feeling, a tone, an emotion, and blended all together with the narrative being told. And it takes these, you know, these disparate stories, like this, you know, a book without a very strong central story, and chooses this is going to be a film about the end of childhood, and you know, the gathering storm all that and every single second of this film feels like we're sitting on the edge of a gathering storm and we're soaking in the beauty of childhood as it's about to end like every choice and, and there's so many layers of choices it's you know how he directs the actors how he choreograph how he stages the shots how bruno delbonel lights it how nicholas hooper scores it like everything this how the sound design is done every choice the editing oh my gosh the, the this really patient rhythmic editing every step of this film is is giving us this incredible vision to give us a feel to evoke a feeling to to immerse us to transport us this is a work of art i think um and the yates like goes from he's a really good director to this <laughs> to the art, like the level of the artist, and like whether or not he's ever able to recapture this level again, he still made this movie. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. 
It was at four stars previously because I had some pacing problems that I didn't feel at all this time. Like, like some of what I was talking about with like with the previous films where it felt like, you know, kind of condensing stuff from the books and a little jarring in transitions. I didn't feel any of that, maybe because I watched it over like five hours, taking a lot of notes. But for some reason, none of that registered this time. So I'm going to bump it up to four and a half stars. And it's, it's passing Chamber of Secrets. So my ranking is uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, Half-Blood Prince, Chamber of Secrets, Order of the Phoenix, Sorcerer's Stone, Goblet of Fire. It's been under Chamber of Secrets since the first time I watched this series. So passing that is pretty big. But... Dude, as I said, it's art. It's so good. So real quickly to talk about the score, uh, James, did you get a chance to listen to any of it? Uh, I did not. <laughs> I really like this one. I think like the film, it's very restrained, but um, I think rich. There's a lot of character and emotion to it. And notice it most noticeably this time was a very strong use of recurring themes which hasn't been something I've noticed since Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, in this one, like you, you keep hearing various music you know, cues over and over again throughout the tracks. Um, first one I want to mention is in Noctum is kind of Dumbledore's theme. It's this very haunting female chorus uh, that shows up in, in a lot of Dumbledore scenes. Um, it's a mix of uh, English and Latin. It feels like this kind of blessing before death kind of a song that should be sung on the eve of battle or something it's very very beautiful and haunting um it's actually an original song by hooper i, I kind of i would have assumed it was like some kind of like old latin choral piece but it wasn't um very very lovely music that shows up all over the score uh there's wizard wheeze this big jazzy number a very you know a whole lot of fun uh ron's victory and they, this one, they bring back uh, William's Quidditch theme uh, from Prisoner of Azkaban, Quidditch the Third Year. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And I, I love that they've... It, it's just weird because I don't... No, I don't, if I, I don't believe any composer has brought back any music aside from Hedwig's theme up, up to this point. So just like, oh, just music. That's, that's really cool. And like, oh, uh, other, other series do this all the time. I wish they did it more. And there's Harry and Hermione... It's the music that plays, uh, you know, after you know the this, the kind of altercation between uh, Ron and Hermione over Lavender Brown. Uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous, very sweet, contemplative, and very very sad. Um, it's very simple kind of heart metal heart melody. <laughs> Farewell, Aragog. It's like this Appalachian dirge. Um, it, it reminds me, I was like, it take me back to like October sky. So the, like you play as the, the camera sweeping over like the rugged mountains of West Virginia. And that's, just, that's what plays over, uh, over a slughorn speech. It's, then a journey to the cave. This one, it, it starts small, but it just keeps building and building until it bursts. When they go out into the rock in the middle of the ocean, it's just grand and epic. Um, probably the only uh, piece of music in the film I would describe as epic. But it's it's really really awesome. Then over, over the credits, you have uh, the Weasley Stomp, which is just this lively kind of Celtic or Celtic infused uh, jig. It feels like it's right out of the Goblet of Fire score, but in a good way. Like it has that kind of Doyle's brand of just infectious joy. Um, yeah, re really good. We we a couple weird choices. One weird choice was that over the uh, over the the Quidditch practice, they play the Dumbledore's Army theme. Um, which is a wonderful theme, but just kind of felt like kind of a weird copy-paste. And then the first track over the credits is is Fireworks. 
from Order of the Phoenix, <laughs> which is number one. Why? Because the we the you know the, the the Weasley twins have very little presence in this film, and two, why? Because I'm very sad. Dumbledore just died. And now you're playing this really fun jaunty music. It's a, it's a like those two places where he kind of copied and pasted music from Order of the Phoenix in ways that didn't really feel like they belonged was very strange. And pretty much my only complaint to the otherwise wonderful score. Moving into the box office. It earned uh, $302 million domestically and $632 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $934 million on its massive $250 million budget. It stands at number three in the series domestically. Uh, but as I said last week, uh, this, Deathly Hells Part 1, Order of the Phoenix, and Goblet of Fire are all within a $12 uh, million range in that order. Worldwide, it stands at number five in the series, underneath Deathly Hells Part 2, Sorcerer's Stone, Deathly Hells Part 1, and Order of the Phoenix, smack dab in the middle of the series. Um, it was the second highest grossing film of 2009 worldwide underneath only Avatar, um, although Avatar did make uh, about $1.8 billion more than it did. That's a, I mean, I guess we, we haven't seen you know, th- margins like that since, uh, you know, well, I guess Endgame, but it doesn't happen that often. These are few and far between. Yeah. Domestically, it stands at number three underneath Avatar and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. And you know what's crazy about this year? Uh, there's not a single film in the top five worldwide that was a Disney film in 2009. Since then, we have two. Since Fox, has, since the Fox purchase, two of them are now Disney films. But and 2009 is the last year that this happens, excluding 2020. I mean, excluding 2020, which should never count for any kind of box office things because Disney didn't release any films that year. In like in both 2016 and 2019, all top five were Disney films if you count co-productions. So like, it, it's so weird like, reading that. Like, Wait, where's Disney? <laughs> they're, not, they're not represented here. Strange. Then going over to the critical reception, um, it holds an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 78 on Metacritic, um, which puts it in the higher half of critical reception for both sites. Um, Although it stands about in the middle of the pack with audience ratings on those two sites and various ones like Letterboxd and uh, IMDb. It received a Best Cinematography nomination at the Oscars, but lost to to, uh, Avatar. It's the only film in the series to be uh, nominated for that award. Uh, Del Bonnell has been nominated five times, but has yet to win one, which is just unfair. Such a shame. Like, I would say that Amelie should have won his first nomination, uh, but it had the misfortune to be released in 2001, which was the same year as The Fellowship of the Ring. So even though Amelie deserved it, Fellowship also deserved it, and we're in a conundrum. Um, <laughs> but like he's going up against these you know, cinematic game changers that like have changed the landscape of filmmaking forever, so you kind of understand. But still... <laughs> so moving into the legacy of this film, James, what do you, what are you thinking is the general view of fans and audience members for this movie well what's kind of funny is it feels like it's legacy like it kind of runs the gamut like i mean we've had we had two different people say you know like hey i love the book but this is my least favorite movie and then we had people you know either say this is my favorite or my second favorite and then obviously the three of us are very high on it and then on these different critic uh, these different sites both with critics on some of them and then audience seems like with most of them, it's kind of in the middle. And so Mm -hmm. it feels like there's, 
there's somebody out there who like this is either their very favorite or close to it there are other people who find it a massive disappointment and then there's a lot of people who are like oh this is one of several that i really like and it's just kind of there and and so it does feel like it's kind of a case by case and at least for me it was harder to try to see some one idea of of its of its legacy kind of emerge it just it felt like it's it's one of those ones that has a lot of different thoughts on it yeah i would put it alongside chamber of secrets and deathly halls part one as the ones that i would view as the most underrated in the series however i think this one has far more strong defenders than those two films like i don't know hardly anyone that defends chamber of secrets as much as they should i know a couple who like deathly halls part one but this one has a really strong fan base um and yeah there's there's a definitely a lot of discontent i say particularly among book fans but also i think a lot of uh a lot of film people in, in casual you know the casual audience there's oh it's you know it's uneventful and boring um but this one this one has i think a very strong contingent of champions particularly because of its cinematography and tone um which is just you know, we've raved about those. I don't need to say any more about it. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think its its legacy will always be contentious because of the ad- adaptation choices it made, and just because it's not a terribly exciting film, and that's it's not going to connect a lot of average viewers who who aren't who haven't kind of bought in to the real the very delicate tone that it's going for. And like I said, it is it is weird to me that it has less of a like fully crystallized identity because I mean, like I even said in the review, I had to remind myself almost that this is a blockbuster. Like it's just, yeah, it's such a crazy movie. It is interesting that it doesn't, it does, it has its champions among cinephiles, but it doesn't have that kind of prisoner of Azkaban love where it's like, this is true cinema. It's amazing. Like it, 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 I, I think, looking at what Yates was going for and how completely different it is from the entirety of the blockbuster landscape and how I think artistically, how much artistic integrity it has as, you know, you know, as a, as a film, you'd think the champ, there would be like a lot, like you'd think it would kind of catch on to some of that prisoner of Azkaban love, but I guess uh, it was all spent on that film. It's not as uh, wounding to the pride of a cinephile, you know, to praise Alfonso Cuaron as it is to, you know, get all effusive over David Yates. All right, so that was our review of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please uh, take a moment to go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and subscribe while you're at it. If you'd like to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisedPod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, well, I won't have to plug uh, The Outer Rim anymore since Josh took that one. So I'll just say I'm over on Letterboxd at JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. I'm also on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01 where I make these uh, movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and other cool stuff like that. So next week... We're already at the end, James. Uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1. I know it's taken a long time, but for me, it it feels like it just flew by. We're already here. Uh, Yeah. Another film in the series that I view as very underrated uh, and probably won't be nearly as long as this review, 
but uh, I love this movie so much. So, all right. Well, until next week, we will see you in the beginning of the end. Good to see you, Wallenby. Well,